Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this uh, podcast with us. Fabulous. I've been listening to your book, and I love the fact that you did the audio recording of it. And uh, I'm not sure you saw the tweet I sent out a few days ago, but one of the ways I learned to read, because I had trouble as a child, was that one of my teachers actually used to sit with me, and she would read out loud while I was trying to learn. And eventually, she took me to the library, and she got me audio cassettes. And I have this pleasure that whenever I get a really good book, I always download the audio copy of it, and I read it while I'm listening to the person read it out loud. Oh, fabulous. What a brilliant story. Brilliant, brilliant story. It's, it's, it's definitely a Rory uh, hack. It's definitely psychologic. She she took a child who couldn't read and turned him into a reader. Oh, fabulous. Completely not conventional into the uh, teacher's curriculum. Someone needs to actually investigate that because it might be a complete game changer. I know I got my daughter into audio books very early. Okay. And, um, and that seemed to help, uh, certainly, because she got because when she was she had trouble getting to sleep and the audio book was kind of perfect because, um, uh, you know, she could go to sleep to an audio book. And I think that got her into reading as well. You know what? I, I was thinking about it as I was coming here, re-listening to your, uh, your book. And I was listening to the idea that, you know, we're so consumed with logic and how we teach, but we don't necessarily always need logic to impart knowledge because that would be a terrible way for evolution to proceed because it wouldn't be very effective. Exactly. I mean, you need the, the really important stuff needs to be embedded in instinct. And there's a really important point, which is that instincts can are heritable, whereas learning needs to be taught. Right. So there seems to be a really important distinction there, which is, you know, something like really important fears for example, are going to be hardwired for the simple reason that it makes no sense on relying on things to be taught uh, in every successive generation if you can hardwire them and make them truly heritable. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a absolutely fasc- a fascinating topic because what, what I was thinking about the whole time, because I was remembering your conversation about how you could make the train service more effective by cutting down 40 minutes because allowing people to jump onto an earlier train. And then I thought about it, and this, this idea about exploring the concept of audiobooks as a part of education is something that they should really explore because they're spending money, uh, an insane amount to quote unquote improve education, but they don't seem to be getting the results they're really after. There is, there is an interesting idea, which I, I mean, I was slightly ridiculed because I mentioned it as a new idea and apparently it's about 15 years old, but it's okay. called flipping the classroom. Okay. And what, what tends to be the approach in conventional schools is you send people home to do homework, which is exercises, where they may rely on parents for help or whatever, or other friends, and then you essentially talk to them in the classroom. Uh, You talk and talk in the classroom. And flipping the classroom is where you now send people home to watch videos, and then you set the exercises in the classroom where you're on hand if anybody needs any help. So the answer is you slightly flip that tradition, which was really just a necessity from technology, that you you could only chalk and talk in the classroom, and therefore most class time at school was the teacher imparting information. And the argument is, since, well, to be honest, since the invention of television, but certainly since the invention of the VCR, that's no longer really true. 
And mm -hmm. so you can reverse the order or at least completely change the ratio of the two. Yeah. No, you know what? And have, have they been able to allow anybody to experiment with this? And what kind well, of... I, th I, th I have seen evidence that, uh, from experiments that suggest it works. But wow. um, I need to investigate it a bit more because it always strikes me as interesting that uh, you know, an awful lot of... I mean, education, non-primary education is really, really ripe for heavy disruption mm -hmm. because the whole thing is, in a sense, it's, uh, it's very, very much geared, I think, to the benefits of the producer, not the consumer. And um, uh, now, obviously, obviously, there are cases of really, really interesting uh, experimentation. Um, certainly, you know, universities are starting to make really good use of remote video. But it does strike me that um, uh, far more needs to be done. I mean, there's no real reason why... It, well, I'll, I'll put it very bluntly, okay? If you mm -hmm. take Yale or Princeton, right... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there is no need to confine their lectures to, uh, let's say, you know, 20,000 people in a year or 10,000 people in a year, nor is there any reason why you need to confine the examination to 20,000 people in a year. Okay, so if the lectures can be mass broadcast and the exam can be taken by 100,000 people, what exactly is going on? Um, you have to start admitting at that point that you're paying quarter of a million dollars for a peer group, not for an education. Like a high cost to actually show that you're committed to the quote-unquote learning that's going to take place there. Well, it's I mean, not an appropriate place for that to apply. I mean, there's another interesting question, which I suppose is, I, I always have an interesting theory, which is that apart from about 500 people on the planet, maybe a few more, Nearly everybody would give you an hour of their time on video conference for a thousand US dollars, right? Yeah. I've, ta I've talked about this. When you talk to people on the public speaking circuit, what they always say is, I don't charge for the speaking. It's the travel and the commitment of place that I'm charging for. It's right. the fact that actually for those two days, I have to be on a plane for 14 hours. And effectively, uh, I can only be in one place for eight hours either side of the engagement. And I've always talked to people who might charge $10,000 for a speaking engagement, would you give an hour of your time on video for $1,000? And nearly everybody goes, yeah, of course, because I could be on holiday with my family in the Bahamas and still right. do it. It doesn't right. prevent me. There's no opportunity cost, really, or right. trivial opportunity cost. Right. Um, and of course, you know, you know, even if the most important thing in the world comes up, you can always shift it by an hour. Right, 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 right. And so, so you have to argue, well, if you've got $75,000 a year for a U.S., Ivy League education. You've potentially got 75 hours of one-to-one -one tuition for the world's leading experts on the subject you're studying. What, what I think needs to happen with education, I'm not, by the way, the peer group thing, the living away from home thing, it's all really important. But it's kind of separable, I have to say. And, you know, and the other question I ask is, why does every university course last three years? Right, that's true. One, one thing I would consider would be, you know, I think, to be honest, one of my daughters would prefer this, would be a super intensive course, possibly more expensive, but which only lasts a year or 18 months. Right. Well, usually apprenticeships tend to be shorter. Yes, more. interesting. Yeah, right. It tends to be like, let's go out in the field and you're going to work with the electrician or the plumber and see what real jobs entail. And then what you, whatever you learn will be a lot more effective for you. I, mean, I, also, find, uh, I also find in education the, the implicit insult mm -hmm. that you don't learn anything once you start work. Now, you know, I went to Cambridge for three years. I, you know, 
if you ask me, did you learn more at your first three years at Ogilvy or did you learn more when I was at university? I'd have to think. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Now, the other point, the other point is that a large amount of, you know, university started really because if you, you know, it was rather like the name of the rose. Information books were absurdly expensive. And if you wanted to study anything with a particular special specialism, you needed to be in a place where those people were. Right. And it's simply, you know, you. I mean, the extent to which you. My my, my father's always very grumpy about this because I'll tell you why. Because he 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 got a third in history, and he said the annoying thing is since getting a third in history or whatever it was, um, might have been English. He said I've spent uh, literally you know fifty five years reading pretty much a serious book every week. But my qualifications are completely unchanged. They're <laughs> defined. They're defined by what I got when I was twenty-two. Right. And um, interesting question, by the way, which you can ask anybody in a job. I mean, I have noticed Silicon Valley doing this, where uh, apparently people get a, get admitted to Harvard, take the admission letter, go to a Silicon Valley firm, and say, "I've got a place at Harvard, but I'd rather work for you." Right. And here's my letter of admission or letter offering me a place. And what they've worked out is that the letter offering a place is probably worth 80% of the value of the degree, but it doesn't cost a quarter of a million dollars, and it doesn't mean three years without earning money. Right, so right. in a sense, the letter of admission is 80% the value of the goddamn degree. <laughs> All right. I must admit, you know, if someone came to me and said, I've, you know, I've, I've, I, you know, I, to be honest, I'd probably tell them to go away for a year, but I'd be tempted. And the, the point they made, I think, which is rather fascinating, is that, um, uh, you know, the, the admission is 80% of the value of the qualification. It also costs nothing. They right. pay for the postage. And right. it gives you three years to earn money and start your career. So, I mean, something, something needs to be done, because I think this is a case of a kind of runaway signalling and credentialist battle. It's not really... A, now, OK, let's park a few things. Let's park medicine. Let's park law. Let's, you know, a few disciplines patently uh, you are actually adding to people's employable capital. Right. OK. Right. But to be frank, you know, people doing fine art and then going into banking or whatever, it's a bit more debatable. Another question to ask is ask anybody who's been eight years into any profession. Let's say you're in advertising or in banking. I've got a friend, genuine maths prodigy. Got, I think got a double star first in maths at Cambridge. Um, and um, I said to him, after you've been, how many years was it you'd been working in banking before your degree class became more or less irrelevant to your next employment. In other words, the point at which an employer would be much more interested in what you'd done at Goldman Sachs or what you'd done at, um, you know, what, what you'd done at Citibank or wherever and who you'd work for and what you could prove versus what you'd done at university. And certainly there's a half-life. Uh, he more or less said after five years, nobody really cared about his, his qualifications. It was all about what he'd done at work. Right, that's right. that's quite a short even if we call that a half-life yes okay and say that they still look they still care a bit it's still going to be decisive when you have two equal candidates perhaps but even so that's not terribly impressive is it no but so you see that reminds me of something interesting because if you said the letter of admission is the 80 percent uh, value yeah presumably is the degree itself when it's been finally printed or, or, or possibly contacts if you're really really cynical you could say the value of a harvard graduate is he knows a load of other harvard graduates That's who are it. going to be working in a load of other places where harvard graduates work 
That's right. That's right. That's what's hilarious about it. But here's why, why that's interesting for me, because uh, Ember has been trying to learn how to, because uh, she wants to become a software developer in front end stuff. And she's been uh, doing what all the rest of us do. And I learned myself the same way. I'm self-taught. I didn't go to school for this. And I told her that the trick to doing this stuff, because there's too much information, is to learn the stuff that's useful 80% of the time. Yeah. And the rest of it, you'll always pick up when you need the edge cases. And that takes a whole burden off your mind because you're emotionally not bogged down by the, oh my God, I don't know this and I don't know that. I don't know every nook and cranny of how a computer is supposed to operate. But that's irrelevant because 90% of the time you don't even need those things. And when you do, Google is your friend. Well, I mean, I've always argued, you know, I mean, why do you, t I mean, the way maths teaching works strikes me as interesting because, you know, if you need to know how to work out the surface area of a cone, that's two seconds Googling. Right. I'd focus much more heavily on statistics right. where interpretation is much more important. Because if you misinterpret statistics or data, you can be very, very confident and very, very wrong. Oh, right. So, you know, I'd certainly, I'd, I mean, the, the, the a great guy called Conrad Wolfram, who's Stephen Wolfram's brother, brother, is obsessed with computational maths, saying that what we're teaching people to do in maths is things that machines can do very, very well. Yes. And, yes. Um, do, you know, is there really much point in doing that uh, when far more focus could be, devoted to things that machines can't do and that that's a really interesting debate the other thing i'd say to amber is find a related field that's complementary and where there's some overlap and get quite good at that as well because my argument is to be the best person in the world at one thing is really really difficult but to be the best person in the world at the intersection of two things is actually statistically attainable right right and so 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 what you're doing there is you're effectively gaming the education system by saying the education system is overly specialized and overly siloed. And by actually being pretty good at two complementary skills, you have something that nobody else has. And so, no, but it's interesting you're self-taught. I, I have to admit, I have absolutely no qualifications in behavioral science whatsoever. I have 30 years in the advertising industry and a classics degree. Right. Here's what's interesting, because you mentioned statistics and our, our, our mutual, I guess, our friend whose books we read, uh, Nassim, uh, he had a very interesting take, which I think you're going to love, which is that he, he said that not only is the study of statistics different Difficult, but the entire field of how it's taught is incorrect. So people are coming out with degrees in statistics and they have no idea what it is they're doing. So that's actually like, and I was, as I was reading your book and I was remembering this idea that some of the stuff that we say, quote unquote, may be bullshit, but at least it's benign. Now, yes. you with a, with a, and as you said, don't get a second tier math person because if they come out with this level of understanding about statistics, A, they didn't understand that B, whatever they did understand is also incorrect. Now you got a really dangerous person whose bullshit will not only be a benign, but it'll be actually catastrophic in most cases. This is really interesting. I mean, he, ha he has quite rightly, I think, an absolute para of sort of the, you know, the Gaussian model. <laughs> um, and and you're, where you're absolutely right, you can be unbelievably wrong statistically and still be confident. Right. And so if I ask someone to, you know, if we talk about the surface area of a cone, okay, well, actually, a, a really good upholsterer, even if they don't know the map, okay, they're going to make a guess, which is pretty damn close to the optimal, but, you know, but which I mean is, you know, if, if you've got a small cushion to be covered, they don't order half an acre of fabric, okay, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because... You know, those are cases where rules of thumb are pretty close to, um, you know, accuracy. And they'd also, by the way, they'd also know a bit 
bit of extra stuff, which is you actually leave a bit of extra fabric for flexibility or repairs or seams or whatever it might be. They know all that stuff. Right. Um, in the case of statistics, the, the fact that you can, I mean, the lovely example, and this is the really important thing, which is that really, really expert and intelligent people are still wrong. Right. And still wrong by orders of... So th there's a wonderful case which I was talking about actually on a podcast the other day in the O.J. Simpson trial. Okay, so the, there was some evidence advanced that O.J. O.J.'s late wife had phoned the police on several occasions claiming she was being attacked. And so unsurprisingly, the prosecution used this as evidence of previous behavior. And the defense argument was that in cases where people phone the police claiming that a family member is attacking them, only one in, let's say, 8,000 uh, actually leads to murder. Right. So they said this is actually very, very poor evidence to advance and should more or less be discredited. And a statistician makes the point, you're missing one really important thing. At this point, she's already dead. Okay, when you have a murder victim and the murder victim has previously called the police claiming a family member has been attacking her, the likelihood that the murderer is actually the person against whom the complaint was earlier made is way more than 50 percent. Right. Right. Uh, right. So, I mean, I can't remember that. I, I can't. But what, if you think about it, you have one person going like, oh, it's a one in eight thousand. And the other person going, it's not quite a sure thing, but it's more likely than not. Right. And they can both be confident. And one of them is, well, certainly, I mean, arguably, they're both kind of a bit wrong, actually. But certainly one of them is wrong by a factor of hundreds. Yeah. Right, right. In that case, what matters there is not that you're wrong. It's just that what's the cost of your error? Right? I, I, you've got it exactly, yeah. And, and the cost, you know, the cost of error in, uh, you know, in, in, in many things is, uh, you know, it's at least manageable. But in cases like that where essentially the you know, viewing the same thing through 90 or 180 degrees causes you to come to an entirely opposite conclusion. You know, that, that's really terrifying. Our friend Mike was telling me, um, if, you, if you look at the Brexit situation and you try... Wh which Mike is this? Michael Driver. Oh, Driver, fantastic, of course, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, so he was telling me on, on the podcast when I had him on, and his argument was, what if you look at Brexit in the opposite direction? What if he said... The European Union has been built and constructed, and in 2019, instead of trying to leave, would Britain want to join if they were never part of it, right? That's doing exactly what you said, which yeah. is to reverse the equation and see what happens if you'd still want to be part of the situation. And also, you know, I, I agree with that, that actually, would you want to join would be a much tougher question. Mm -hmm. um, actually, one of the problems, of course, is that opportunities are much harder to quantify than costs. Right. So it's fairly easy for a bunch of economists to go and say, okay, let's enumerate the disadvantages of leaving. Um, based on, by the way, a completely exaggerated view of the benefits of free trade. Whereas actually the opportunities of leaving are impossible to quantify. Now, this is a really interesting, interesting question because I've been starting to have this argument in the advertising industry where I would argue that perhaps the greater benefit of advertising, of just being famous, if you like, is simply that you become exposed to far more opportunities. And since you can choose which of those opportunities you actually exploit, opportunity tends to skew positive. Okay. Now, if I were to ask my daughters, why do you go out on Saturday night to a party? They don't have a specific plan in mind normally okay the general instinct instinct among teenagers is you go to parties because you might get lucky now that right. could be 
sexually, romantically, it could be, you, it could be, by the way, it, um, very, very important, you get invited to an even better party the next weekend. Right. It could be that you get, you learn gossip, you get a, a job offer, you get invited on holiday. Uh, it could be you get in, but what you do know, the one thing you do know is that you don't know how those opportunities are going to present themselves or what form they'll take. You do know that if you stay home, you're not going to get any of them. Right. right. And in the same way it is with fame, what we're trying to do is turn advertising into this reductionist thing where you decide in advance what function the advertising performs and you evaluate its success only to the extent that it achieves a goal that you defined beforehand. And my argument is, look, there are loads of things in life which don't work like that. They're probabilistic. There's a very good reason why teenagers, I think, Darwinian reason, why teenagers are hypersocial, which is just that it's a competition not to get left out. So FOMO, FOMO among teenagers, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be telling you, <laughs> telling you this, but FOMO is actually a rational Darwinian response to the fact that basically the people who go to parties may end up with an order of magnitude more opportunities and possibilities than the people who stay home. Right. And so, so it, now that doesn't mean, that, that's not to mean you've got to have a party strategy. It simply <laughs> means going to parties is better than not going. Right. And, right. Um, uh, and so this idea of advertising where you, you kind of define it in advance and you narrowly measure its success against predefined metrics seems to miss the, I mean, if you're a B2B brand, okay, you're, let's, you know, okay, if you're the chief executive of Rolls-Royce Aero Engines, because your company is famous, okay, pretty much anybody in the world's going to return your phone call apart from a couple of presidents and a prime minister, I would guess, okay? Right. Right. Even then, they might listen, okay? Um, if you're the um, chief executive of Zog Aviation um, and you ring up, um, actually, even random uh, even random members of the public might not even return your phone call. Now, okay, no one ever says thanks to our brand and thanks to our spectacular marketing efforts, we get our phone calls returned, but it's a part of it. People want to work for you. People work for you for less. People come to you with proposals. People come to you with partnership ideas. All those things partly happen because they've heard of you in the first place. Okay? Reminds, me of, reminds me of your dormant strategy about replacing a doorman with an automatic door. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So what, you, what, what tech loves to do is it defines something very narrowly right and the reason it defines it narrowly is that the evolved solution to the problem is much more complex than the design solution mm -hmm. so in order for tech to replace a pre-existing human solution like the physical book okay right. right um what you've got to do is you've got to define a book as tech or as readable text Right. And actually, a book isn't really read. I mean, if you look at we we I, I'm guilty of this, by the way. Total mayor culper on this one. When the Kindle came out, I thought, okay, that's it. A printed book is basically a dud. Now, just to be clear on this, I was kind of right. Well, I was kind of right and wrong. My daughter asked for a record player for Christmas. And I practically went bananas because I'd grown up where the only way of listening to music was on vinyl. And I must admit, I never really bought CDs in very large numbers because I thought it was an intermediate technology. I thought the future of listening to music will be either, you know, it'll be either on solid state devices or streamable. I actually had an MP3 player long, long before the iPhone existed. It was a Creative Labs thing, which was enormous. And it only had about 200 songs or 400 songs but it was great for long flights right and so in predicting that spotify kind of kills uh, music on physical devices 
I was probably 90% right, although who would have predicted vinyl would have taken off? I mean, certainly not me. With the Kindle, I was completely wrong. And that's because the book actually won. Uh, there's a very simple fact about books, which is often neglected. Okay, something like 80% of book sales are around Christmas in the West. And they're actually presents. Right. Okay. Right. Um, uh, books are also used as, you know, as, as a kind of furniture, as, as a kind of furniture. So there are lots and lots of reasons, really, why um, actually a Kindle doesn't replace a book in the same way that an automatic door doesn't replace a doorman, because right. the doorman's performing nine separate functions. Right, right. You know what's interesting about that? I fell for the same trap, but I fell for it on my iPad. And because I knew I did the same maths as you, and I said, wait a minute, I have too many books in this house. Mm. There's no room to walk. I need to put all this into digital form. But you know what, you know what I lost? I lost the conversation starters. Nobody knows what I have on my iPad to read, but when they used to visit me, they would pick a book and they'd say, oh, I've read that. Oh, what did you think of it? All of a sudden, a complete stranger necessarily turns into a friend because we both read the same book. That layer of social cohesion was completely ripped out of the equation. So that was problem one. But problem two was the iPad allowed me very easily to get distracted because I'm like, oh, let me look up this word. That's awesome because now my dictionary is at my fingertips, but also YouTube is at my fingertips. Then I'd get sidetracked and all the benefits of reading started to go away. You absolutely got it, which is actually part of the value of a book is it's just a book. If you take a book to the beach, you read the book. That's and you're abs absolutely right with that, which is the, I mean, I've always asked the fact, okay, if you take quite a few of the most talented, creative people, okay, I mean, okay, um, how many poems would Philip Larkin have written or Dylan Thomas if the device on which they wrote their poems, which was probably a typewriter or perhaps a hand, a, a pad and pen also had access to free pornography okay now, I'm, I'm just asking a very silly question about i don't think we'd have most of philip larkin <laughs> okay. um, if his typewriter had also had access to um okay now so that question of, of I mean, it's very, very interesting, by the way, when you uh, when you write a book, which is I got into voice dictation partly for that reason, mm. um, which is that you you do actually. I mean, the it's very complicated. The danger of getting stuck down a Wikipedia rabbit hole when you're writing a book is unbelievable. Right. And so there's something to be said for the, uh, you know, a really crude device, which lets you write and nothing else. Right. Um, and I, I, by the way, I think there's a catastrophic problem. Mm which is we don't have a device, costly signaling device in messaging that says this is really important. Now, what that means is that because there isn't a klaxon that goes off, on the one occasion a day, someone sends me both a time-sensitive and momentous communication. Okay, Logically, twice a day, I should ignore my email most of the time. And twice a day, when the computer goes, ooga, okay, I should go, shit, something's happened of major importance. Oh, my meeting's been cancelled. Okay, right, right. And to make a computer go, ooga, you should have to pay 50 pence. Right, That's how it should work. Right. Right, right, right. Because that system doesn't, doesn't exist, the benefit of deciding what's important falls to the recipient, not the sender. Right. The, so the burden of, of determining what's important falls on the recipient. I have to check my email every... If you've got a, if you've got a neurotic chief executive who, who emails occasionally, you have to check your email about every half hour in case he's sent something to you or that, or that something really time-sensitive has been sent to you. Now, email did come with a kind of importance indicator. Unfortunately, it did not ask the question about importance as a default. 
Right. Now, if you change that so that every email you sent, you had to rank in terms of, say, time sensitivity and importance. Bear in mind, we send far fewer emails than we receive. So that wouldn't be a particularly egregious time burn. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if, if that, if that were made a requirement of email, then productivity would be improved by, for millions of people by half an hour a day, because you simply wouldn't have to check that much. Right. Very much true. Very much true. I think Amber had a question that she wanted to ask you. Please. Yeah. Uh, so, what's the difference between marketing and advertising? Technically, I suppose advertising is a uh, is a subdivision of uh, of marketing. So, marketing would be in. I mean, this is I'm using very old fashioned definitions here, but it's kind of convenient. Uh, marketing is typically the five P's, which is, and I'll, I'll, I always forget one of them. Uh, it's promotion, which is the P in which advertising sits. And uh, let me get let me price is another one. Product. Let me get here. We are. Uh, they made a mistake making it five rather than four because we can uh, we, we can always memorize four it's like u.s phone numbers uh here we go uh, so it's product price promotion place and people uh is well at least is one of them and uh, they're the key marketing elements used to position a business strategically promotion would include advertising alongside say sponsorships public relations uh you might argue media oh sorry not me you wouldn't argue that you might argue things like uh, as well naming and packaging design and and indeed uh, packaging design probably is a cross between product and promotion but advertising is a kind of subordinate part of the whole thing mm. and um, the danger is is that a lot of people think that advertising is marketing and what then happens with an organization is marketing gets renamed marcoms which is a short portmanteau word which means marketing communication and then all it becomes about is communications either internally or externally bought uh, or whatever the problem of that is that marketing is now no longer at the table for discussions of product price place and people and its influence diminishes inordinately now its influence diminishes less if you're a packaged goods company where the cost of promotion is very very high right. uh, relative to the you know uh, relative to all other costs and so you still retain quite a bit of influence as a mark as a marcoms or marketing person in a packaged goods company in an industrial company with with uh, mainly business customers you effectively fall off the you you fall out of the top two tiers of influence and control now the reason that's dangerous is because there are certain things that only a marketer sees i don't know if you've been involved in the ergodicity debate but but but, but most balance sheets tend to take a kind of ergodic assumption right. about how a company is performing Right. And without the marketing, without the presence of a marketing person, no one's actually taking the customer eye view over time. Right. So, uh, a very interesting argument about this recently, which a lot of people, a lot of people thought I was being perverse. So the Labour Party makes the point that uh, the people who will be affected by tax rises with a higher rate of 50% levied above, I think it might be 80,000 80, well, pounds. Uh, certainly there's, there's a level at 80,000 pounds where you start paying a significantly higher level of tax. Well, well, not significantly heavier, a bit heavier. And I was merely explaining why far more people are pissed off about this than you might expect. And the reason is that the, the assumption is that there are these 5% of people who earn 90, 100, 200, 300, thousand pounds a year right. and then there are people who don't and that that doesn't change over time and i said the reason it pisses people off more is there are a lot of people far more people who will be earning that amount of money at some point in their lives right. in their future life particularly right. because earnings tend to be back-end weighted 
You earn more when you're old than you're younger. Peak earning time is some probably in your um, early 50s might be. I don't know. Okay. But the interesting thing about that is all I was trying to do, people thought I was kind of attacking it. I was merely saying that the reason this is much more annoying than it appears to be is that your assumption is that 5% of people go, oh, no, that's a nuisance. Everybody else goes, well, hey, more money. Right. The problem is there are a huge swathe of people right. who who's the only cho- reason they chose the job they went into is because it offers at least the possibility of earning £80,000 later on. So right. you know, any trainee lawyer, any tra- trainee doctor, um, I would argue anybody moving to London, okay? Right. I mean, if you're moving to London and you uh, without the expectation of the possibility now it's probabilistic again okay i'm not suggesting everybody who moves to london goes i'm moving to london because i'm definitely going to earn eighty thousand pounds a year but a hell of a lot of people start in jobs because at least you could if we didn't if we if we didn't have that possibility we all would have become librarians (laughs) you know and so it is a really interesting point of view that, that you suddenly realize that so much in life and business and government takes this kind of assumption that things are static. Right. And uh, actually, I, I went and dug out some statistics. I couldn't find any statistics on the top 5% of earners, but I found them on the top one. Right. And actually, there's a huge amount of 25% of people drop out after one year. I think it's something crazy like that. Within about six or seven years, 50% of people have dropped out of that magic 1% top earners. Right. So for many, for many people, of course, it may be only one year because yeah. you, know, you work in some weird field like offshore oil rig security. Right. And the way, the way your world works is that every now and then you just hit on a bonanza and right. someone pays you double overtime for six months and so on. Right. Right. And so hitting those people is a much wider hit than right. the people who design the policy think it is. Right, right. You know what's interesting about that is if you think about the Occupy Wall Street movement, their entire brand was wrapped around the quote-unquote 1%, which is interesting because for them, the 1% are the millionaires and the billionaires. But you say to them, if you go a little bit below that, that supposed marker, you'll find the engineers and the doctors and the lawyers who are also being vilified and that's why they don't want to join your your cause because you basically excluded a whole bunch of people based on the villainy of one percent that you think are the root cause of all the no, problems no, no, no just to make a left-wing point just to counterbalance my right-wing point is sure. that i would argue that tax should be different if you earn constantly huge amounts okay. versus if you occasionally earn huge amounts i mean okay this is a very extreme uh, defense but um there's a small defense in the insane salaries of Premier League footballers. Yes. Which is, this is just, you know, okay, or elite sports stars, which is your career's pretty short, okay? Right. I, I mean, you know, okay, yep, you do, you, you, one of the reasons why you may want to get pretty greedy is you've probably got six years uh, with, you know, after which some of you will get into management, some of you will get into coaching. Right. Some of you will be, well, I mean, the people who won the England world cup in 1966 you know many of them ended up in fairly you know mainstream jobs now obviously the salaries then were totally different and most people i think looked at that and contrasted it with modern footballer wages and thought god that was unfair you know here were 11 absolute greats and one of them ended up running a chip shop or whatever to me it does seem to be different you know but and actually probably the problem is the the real problem is the 0.5 percent but the real problem of course is that wealth disparity is much much more extreme than income disparity it's your option that that speaks to your optionality point earlier 
that the more you earn, the more people want to sponsor you for their product, the more money you'll make, the more you get recognition, the more sponsors come to you. It sort of cascades in that direction. So yes, you got it exactly, yeah. So the yeah. wealth is a runaway effect, whereas actually income isn't. And right. it, it also, taxing income as opposed to wealth, you might argue if you taxed earned wealth, it has much less of a negative incentive effect. This is where Georgism comes from, the idea that you should have a land value tax, which is it's a form of taxation which doesn't really create perverse behaviour. Mm. Uh, and I, 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 I'm brought, I mean... Um, Herbert Simon was a huge advocate, as was actually Milton Friedman was for a time. And I'm also, I'm also a fan of inheritance tax. I mean, th this is where I'm saying, once, once you adopt this policy and once you understand the ergodic distinction, it makes you more right-wing in some directions and more left-wing in others. I mean, inheritance tax is, uh, is an interesting one because it seems weird to me that you're taxed at a lower rate for doing nothing than you are for doing something. That does seem to me kind of a bit odd and whereas i think well there's also an argument for inheritance tax which i suppose is the bill gates example which is he said i'm going to leave my children enough money to do anything but not enough money to do nothing right right, right. <laughs> which I, I mean adam smith made that point that actually what your i mean you know what your children in i would be deeply deeply upset if, uh, if at the age of 18 my two daughters were left a, a quarter of a million pound inheritance each Mm. Um, I'd be delighted if they were left a £20,000 inheritance right. or a £40,000 inheritance, which is a deposit on a flat. I'd be delighted. You know, 400000 I'd be, I'd be terrified, really. I mean, that way lies you know, all manner of risks. Right. No, I understand. Okay. So the next uh, question is, what are your strategies in approaching those who use logic instead of magic? Well, I think the only danger with logic is if you require everything. First of all, uh, in some ways with logic, we set quite a low proof bar because the human brain is very good at post-rationalizing things. So what we tend to do is we go, this thing happened. This is a plausible explanation for it. Therefore, the explanation, because it's plausible, is true. Now, given the brain's facility for post-rationalizing, there are actually multiple explanations for things. Um, uh, as with, for example, there's a very boring logical explanation that university adds to human capital, which increases value to your employer, blah, 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 blah. But there's another argument, which is it's signaling. It's essentially credential signaling. The second thing is that the great problem with logic is if you demand everybody's logical, you essentially put people into a kind of reductionist, instrumentalist mindset where no magic can happen. Right. And so it creates the idea that it's a bit like physics and that the scale of the input is proportionate to the scale of the effect. Now, one of the things in marketing, which marketing, I think, can lend to economics, is a great Japanese idea called Kano theory. Okay. And it's Professor Kano at the University of Tokyo who points out that products, in a sense, have three attributes to them there's the threshold attribute which is just does it basically you know is it not shit so you know um, a milk manufacturer whose cartons half of them leaked would right. fail to meet threshold right. but you can't say that a non-leaking milk carton creates delight and happiness in the customer it's not a reason to choose a brand it's simply a reason to reject it right. then you have performance attributes which are kind of linear and Let's say you had something like a cassette. I realize that you don't know what a cassette deck is. Do you? No, no, we're good. We're good. You're Go good, on. okay. But a CD player, DVD player, okay. Um, that would be things like reproduction quality, build quality, you know, uh, rational things like, the, you know, the sound quality, quality of delivery. And that's kind of linear. And then there are these things called delight attributes. 
which are often surprisingly tangential to the function of the main device. And that would be the eject mechanism, where if it just goes clunk, you think the thing's rubbish. Whereas if it's beautifully engineered, counterweighted, pneumatic, and it hisses and whirs in a beautiful way, it creates delight. Right. Right, right, right. And I think there's a real point there, which is that rational people are purely focused on the first two and completely miss the third. More to the point, the third thing is the first thing the finance director tries to kill when he tries to make a budget cut. Right. So, so there's a wonderful American hotel chain called Doubletree, and they have what I'd call a classic Carnot delight attribute, which is when you check in, you, there's a, an oven underneath the check-in desk, and they give you a bag of hot, fresh, homemade cookies awesome. to take to your room. And the, the reason it's valuable, nobody in a survey on what you want from a hotel would say hot cookies and check-in, okay? That doesn't factor in the list of things that consumers think they want, right. okay? But the, fact, the very fact that it's kind of discretionary and a bit gratuitous makes it meaningful. Right. And, and the point about that is apparently the finance function have been trying to kill that thing for years because it costs a few million dollars a year. And the marketing director actually, to piss them off, recently made the cookies bigger. <laughs> now, by the way, if the cookies were a bit shit or they weren't warm or they were just uh, shop-bought, right. that, that would be a bit kind of meh. Okay, yeah. but then I'm not. I, I, don't, I don't even like. I'm a Brit. First of all, I don't think they're called cookies. They're called biscuits. Secondly, right. <laughs> we'll park all that stuff. Secondly, when they said a bag of our signature cookies, as a Brit, I kind of go, "What's this colonial bollocks?" <laughs> <laughs> but they're actually delicious. So I went up to my room and I got the coffee machine working. I turned on the TV. I thought, "Well, I'm having coffee. I might as well have one of your signature cookies." And they're bloody delicious. They're fantastic. And so it's one of those things where I haven't stayed in a double tree since that was 1997, I think. So it's 22 years since I've stayed in a double tree. If my PA said to me again, um, which do you want, the double tree or the Marriott? 22 years later, I'd probably go, nah, let's go for the double tree. I would go the, for the cookie you told me. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just. Uh, now, now, the interesting thing is, if we create a culture where you can't do gratuitous, del delightful things, mm. we've created a world which is rich in function but poor in meaning right i think there's a whole discussion about modernist architecture here which we could go off on my friend um nick gruen who's a brilliant australian economist um really fascinating guy he um uh, recently i thought one of the greatest things i've ever thought of which is he looked at the sagrada familia in barcelona the gaudi church and he looked up at it his first ever visit from australia and he said uh, basically if it hadn't been for modernism this is what the 20th century could have been like <laughs> wow. yeah, the whole of the 20th century now interestingly with 3d printing of buildings all that slab shit needs mm. to go because right. it's not even structurally efficient. You know, if you, want a, if you want a really good structural strength to weight ratio, intricacy right. is a really, really good thing. Right. Okay? So you can use less concrete in more or less building material in more intricate ways to achieve far more. And the, the, the byproduct of that is you'll have organic shapes that have a resemblance in nature rather right. than all this cubic shit. Now, I agree with Nassim on this one, by the way. He makes an allowance, which is if you have a bloody great glass cube with a huge window, but outside the window is a lot of nature, it's right. actually quite nice. Okay. Right. Right. Uh, okay, so I, I lived on the on the eighth floor of a Bayswater apartment building, and we we, we had it, it was a modernist thing by Sir Kenneth Frampton, but there was a massive tree outside the window, so it was like 
there was something actually a bit Darwinian about it. It was a bit like being a monkey because you were high up in a tree. <laughs> that was what it felt when you woke up in the morning. So I'm sure that there was something deep in me which felt really safe from predators or something. Right. But and Nassim, quite rightly, I think, he, he excuses that, which is if you're surrounded by a natural environment, cube mm. property actually works. Right. Um, because there's a contrast between that and the surrounding uh, fractal nature of of nature around you, but if, if you're in a cube environment surrounded by other cubes, yeah, it's very depressing. It's horrible, you know. But what's interesting is the Apple stores are now moving in a direction where they're bringing nature inside the store itself. So they're bringing trees and little areas, patches of grass and whatever, so you can kind of feel like you're still outside, even though you're on the protection. So it's like the best of nature is still allowable to seep in to what we would call a non-organic sort of structure. But there's yeah. a funny story to this that you would appreciate. Uh, a few years back, I was working with a, a group of chiropractors. I was in the fitness industry, and they were trying to design a shoe to help alleviate pain. And they kept designing shoes that were flat at the bottom. And I kept reminding them that everybody's foot has an arch for a reason. And the yeah. arch dissipates force a lot more effectively than this flat even, oh, well, your, your foot's flat, it'll disperse everywhere. I said, no, you need the arch because nature knows how to disperse force much better than you do. And they went iteration after iteration, and 153 shoes later, they still didn't buy it, even though no matter what they did, they couldn't get the shoe to work. It was supposedly much better, but whenever they gave it to customers, first of all, nobody would wear it because it was ugly. And second of all, even if they did wear it because they were in severe pain, after a while, it just the, the supposed effects of it kind of wore off. So you'll start to notice that when you look at people's shoes, that the shoes that are flatter tend to be less popular than the shoes that have a little bit of an arch built into it to match your own foot. Ah, that's fascinating. So they, they started from the assumption that because you walk on flat ground, ergo... Right, exactly. Of course. Of course, that's it. And what they forgot was the weight come, doesn't come from the ground. It comes from your body up top, and that your body has compensated for by creating an arch to disperse that load. Of course. Right, and and bizarrely, even though we call, even though you call it the arch of the foot, right. I never made the connection between the arch in structural engineering that's and the, the arch in, in uh, biology, as it were. That's, exactly that, that's a fascinating thing because there are so many cases where linguistics actually tell us what's going on. Mm. You know, little uh, you know, little phrases. If you actually uh, the the fact that you use the phrase reputable. Right. If you dig into that as an advertising person, the word reputable means capable of having a reputation attached to it, right. which kind of means that you've got a brand or an identity. You see right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You suddenly realize we use all these words all, all the time and actually digging back to what it, what's originally going on is, is somehow a really useful thing to do. Right, right, right. Reputable. As soon as I hear reputable, in my mind, the connection I make is repeatable. I'm like, okay, I yeah. do business with this person. Because yeah. they're not going to screw me over. And in other words, what it is, they've got reputational skin in the game is essentially. And I suppose you could say that an Uber driver is reputable right. to the extent that you can award him a five-star, four-star, three-star, two-star rating. Right, it's, right. You know, that's a really, really interesting kind of linguistic thing uh, where somehow the origin, digging back to the origin of words, is, well, advertising, of course, is another interesting one, which is it means to direct, and I think it's from the Latin, ad, I should know this as a classicist, for God's sake, but I think it's from anima advertere, which is to direct your attention. Right. And of course, this is very close to the Robert Cialdini insight, that the brain thinks important what occupies its attention. Rather right. than us paying attention to what's important, whatever we pay attention to becomes important in our mind. 
Right. And therefore, what advertising does is by changing the frame of reference with which we look at a product, if you look at the Eurostar right. purely under the, you know, you look at train travel, there's a wonderful Saatchi and Saatchi ad called Relax, which was for British Rail Intercity uh, back in the 80s. And what it does is it forces you to look at a journey not through the lens of journey time end to end, but through the lens of the quality of the time you enjoy while you're traveling. Right, right, right. Okay, right. If, if it's on YouTube. It's called Relax. It's a Saatchi and Saatchi and City ad. Um, but what the point about that is that when you think about, hold on, if I'm in a car, I'm sitting there, my hands are occupied, I can't listen to the radio, but actually I can't play chess, read a paperback. And so what this ad is doing is it's making you think of the journey in terms of quality of time rather than quantity of time. Right. And by animadvertering, that particular aspect, you right. turn what might be a weakness into a strength. Uh, absolutely. You know what's interesting about that? I took a course on um, defensive driving. And my oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. My, my, my instructor was a rally driver. And what he taught me was he said, whenever you're in a situation where you feel like your car is out of control, look where there's nothing and your hands will automatically shift you there because your brain is telling you where to go. If you look at a pole, you will slam into the pole. Whoa. <laughs> Right? I, know, I know there's an effect in driving, which is the weird thing that if you have a very long straight in the United States mm-hmm. with, with a sort of billboard at the end, yeah. people become so fixated on the billboard that they actually <laughs> plow into it. Right, and right. I, I don't, there's this weird thing going on. That's a, when did you do the defensive driving course? So in, in where I live, about 45 minutes up north, there's like this whole area where it's kind of deserted. And this where place- do you live, by the way? I must ask. Oh, he, he, he lives just up in that area. And he's an older gentleman and he just teaches defensive driving. Oh, fantastic. You know, yeah. I had a defensive driver once who I think, I think in the UK there's level three and level four. Level four is basically the military for close protection. I think, you've, to be honest, I think you've got to be in the army or the police to get it because there's a whole lot of other stuff probably involving guns and stuff. Uh, okay. But I had a level three defensive driver as an Uber Lux driver once and I was running late for a train. And it was off the charts. I mean, how this guy got through. He was in an S-class Merc because it was Uber Lux. Right. I was in a hurry and the Lux wait time was less. And to be honest, I love Uber Lux. It was total <laughs> indulgence. Um, but this guy, given, given the size of this car, this guy was astounding. I was just, you know, I was just in, totally in awe of him because it was so brilliantly done. Yeah, some people are naturally born. Like you could tell when you sit in a car with somebody who's a natural born driver. And mm. the vast majority of us are not. And when you sit with somebody, like if, if you ever want the best experience, sit next to a rally driver because they're calm, the nerves of steel, and their car is like, it looks like it's completely out of control, but they know exactly what they're doing. And yeah. it's a totally different experience. And when you learn from somebody like that, just by being in their presence while they're driving and they're, they explain it to you, you become a better driver just because you become aware of things that you never knew before. Yeah. So the whole idea of looking where you're going to drive is, he said, if anything you remember, if your car is out of control, look where there's nothing. And, and as soon as you look there, your odds of going there are going to increase by 90% because your hands will adjust the steering wheel to accommodate that, that destination. Fantastic. What a brilliant tip. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant tip. Yeah. So he works in, in that. In, and that's the type of thing that I, I like about your book with the whole idea of alchemy, right? Because this is one of those things where logically speaking, in that moment, all your logic fails you. All what yeah. works in that instance is just your instinct. What can you instinctively do to get out of that situation? And actually, of course, if you think about it, the, the really important stuff we do is all instinctive anyway. I mean, who to marry, where to live. I mean, the, the one thing I do worry about quite significantly, and this is, implies to, I guess, online data, 
creating and also property selection right. is that I, by imposing a logical framework on the choice, we make people think they're making, making a better decision when perhaps they're not. So one of the things I'd like to work on would be if you use a property website in the UK, there's still Prime Location and Zoopla and so forth. It should throw up wildcards. So if you ask for, the argument would be a very simple, to give an extreme argument, okay? Let's say I'm looking for a holiday home in Derbyshire, okay? Uh-huh. Now, I'm probably going to look for detached houses. And so immediately, now, that doesn't mean, you know, that if half of Chatsworth was for sale for uh, half a million pounds, I wouldn't be interested, okay? Right. Right. So... Uh, when you look at choices, I mean, if you, I, you know, I can't speak for this, but if you'd actually laid down a list of criteria for a wife in advance and you look at your existing wife, okay, then like all consumer decisions, there are kind of trade-offs, but there are also surprises where you go, well, actually, I'd never thought that thing. And there's probably quite a bit of Carnot theory in marriage and houses, by the way, right. which is people, they never particularly wanted to buy this this house, but it has a fan, I don't know. I mean, my brother's, my brother's an astronomer, okay? Now, he was recently looking for houses. I'm sure if there'd been a house with an observatory, he would have bought it, even if it had no redeeming qualities. Okay, so, so the extent to which I think that, how, that a lot of these choice things are very crude, they're just elimination by attribute, and then it drives non-numerical things like aesthetics down to a very low level. But actually, and I was talking to Shlomo Bonazzi about this, the design of your house, the architecture of your house is a significant source of lasting pleasure. You know, if it's done well or the location's good or whatever, there's a significant source of pleasure in that. Now, actually, because there isn't a numerical measure for that, I can't well, there are a few specialist websites. There's one called themodernhouse.net in the, in the UK. In the US, if you ever want to move, there's one called Right on the Market, which is all the Frank Lloyd Wright properties for sale at any one time. Yeah. And that's, that's actually, I'd, rather, I'd much rather own a Frank Lloyd Wright house than own a Picasso. Right. You know, deep down. You know, okay, it might be in a bit of a weird place given my <laughs> financial resources. I'd end up, there is a Frank Lloyd Wright gas station, I think, in Idaho, which you can buy for half a million dollars. It's the only one of the world actually wow. frank, yeah and that's probably where i'd end up but um, it, it does strike me as interesting which is the order at which the criteria are presented i mean an interesting one in online dating is that of course there's something the computer can't capture which is smell right uh, there's uh, my hunch is that quite a lot of what peeps keeps people quite a lot of what makes you attractive to someone else is actually going to be to do with a load of weird pheromonal monkey stuff that we can't quantify now eventually gene sequencing might might reach a level where you could do that be highly dangerous i suspect because but anyway because it might be incredibly dangerously potent but um, th- there is something interesting going on there which is that patently we can't actually um give voice to our preferences in a coherent form because right. if I, you know, if I look at the, you know, do you want to marry someone who's politically similar to you or politically different? I married someone who's, uh, you know, who is considerably to the left of me. Now, actually, I wouldn't have written down that as a request. Okay. Right. But it's right. much healthier, much healthier living with someone with whom you have political disagreements. It's also it's much better for your kids. Because I explained, you know, I explained, you know, with my kids, she does the Jesus, I do the Darwin. Okay. Right. But they get a balanced, they get a balanced education. If we were both rabid Darwinists, okay, right, they wouldn't have the same balance. Right, right, right. There'd be a level of misery there that just... Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting about that is I'm one of those people, I have a hypersensitive nose. 
And I noticed this. My wife does as well. She's a sort of super, what, what do they call it? She's like that with, with taste smells. And she's also um, got that totally weird thing where words have a color attached, which is called chromatic synesthesia. Right, right. That's which a is bloody weird. <laughs> so what color is clock? That's brown. So what color is clock? Black. Okay. Uh, what color is Rory? Mainly black. <laughs> But it means red in some Celtic language. Okay, fair enough. Okay, what, okay, give me a word that's yellow. Sunday is yellowy orange. Yellowy orange. Who would have known? Okay. What? What? So, so anyway, she's got this. Frankly, I think she ought to be sectioned. But um, anyway, um, that, that's how it works. And, uh, <laughs> but but see, what, what makes that interesting for me is when I go into a meeting with a person or when I go into, you know, do consultations with a client or whatever, my sense of smell is my first way to say if I want to do business with this person or not. It's like how I like a person. Mm. If I don't like how you smell, it's going to be very difficult for me to go past that because I can't get that out of my head. I right? do worry about, I do worry that I'm a bit of a physiognomist, which okay. is that if I meet someone who's facially very similar to someone I like, I tend to like them. Now, in a totally small evolutionary setting where that meant they were likely to be related to the other person, that might make rather a lot of sense, being a bit of a physiognomist. In a, in a city of seven million people, I do worry sometimes that someone... Now, it doesn't generally happen in reverse. I don't remember ever taking an instant dislike to someone on physiognomical grounds. But I do. there, there are people who just have a particular sort of facial set that's close to someone I know and like. And it tends to sort of warm up the relationship a bit fast. So here's a question then. What if you see somebody who looks like somebody you don't like? What I know. <laughs> I know this is a really interesting it's a really interesting question and of course it's a huge question with things like actually much more uh, I mean an interesting question about this is spoken accent probably has a big effect right it's very interesting because uh, you know uh, everybody there's an argument by Robert Kurtzban which is that ethnicity may be overstated because for most of evolutionary history we never came across anybody of markedly different ethnicity whereas he thinks that accent can be very very deeply embedded in other words that that speak you know patterns of speech so if you think about it the, what the Greeks barbarians means people who don't speak Greek uh, that's because their sound is bar 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 so there, there are really interesting things going on there in terms of you know are we making weird assumptions so we're not always we're not always looking for I, you know when we have these courses on subconscious bias I'm not sure we're always looking in the right place we're looking at what's easy to measure right. uh, we're not looking at what may actually in evolutionary terms be more important right, uh, right. I mean, my, my point about this would be that if you're a private school educated person from anywhere in the world okay who spoke rp english and you went to went to apply to a merchant bank mm. your jobs your job prospects would be inordinately better than that of a highly qualified person with a strong liverpudlian accent right right you know what's okay. funny about that is here's the thing i think somebody in your business has somehow managed to convince the world that people with british accents are smarter and sexier <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but you guys have that going for you. It, 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 it only really works. It's weird. It only really works in the US. I don't think it works. Does it work in Canada? I don't know. Australia, Australia and New Zealand, I don't think it works. I think it's a very weird US thing. And I, my, my reasoning is that it's wildlife documentaries that we have David Attenborough to thank. Because if you think about it, it's PBS. And so you associate the British accent with educational television. 
Right, 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 right. And I've often wondered whether that's the reason, because it's some it's some televisual thing. There is a problem now, apparently, in the US, which is parents are complaining that their children are developing British accents through watching Peppa Pig. <laughs> and there are YouTube there are YouTube videos. Not only do they end sentences with <laughs> <laughs> but, but there are YouTube videos of people complaining that my young child's got a British accent. <laughs> I'm kind of watching it going, I can't hear it! What's going on? Okay. Wow. And, um, so, no, that's an interesting one. Uh, lovely story. My favourite Peppa Pig story is they broadcast an episode of Peppa Pig in Australia where the father says to Peppa, don't worry, Peppa, spiders are very small and can't hurt you. Oh. Okay. Now, that's perfectly good advice in Britain where... As far as I know, there are no poisonous spiders. Okay, in Australia, that's about the worst life advice you can give. Right, right. So it's a wonderful case of someone just trans, you know, transposing a piece of television from one place to another. It's interesting about that because as soon as you start talking about Pepper the Pig, I thought about Animal Farm, and I thought about how it's not allowed to be read in Islamic cultures. So any Islamic country, because of Animal Farm's characters. The message that is, is entailed in that with Orwell's brilliant uh, writing is completely off limits simply because of the association of the animals and the pigs that are inside that story, right? So there's just weird things that happen that are unintended because of cultural biases towards one thing or another. No, well, there was an interesting case where a poor chap who worked for a large bank got into massive trouble because he was talking about the... Uh, there'd been a swine flu crisis in China. And he included the phrase, well, how important is this economically? Well, it's bad news if you're a Chinese pig. It's, it's, bad, it's bad news if you're a Chinese pig farmer. If you're a Chinese consumer, it's mildly annoying. For the wider world, it's not very important. A lot of people leapt on that because he'd used the word. Now, in, in idiomatic English, we'd say Chinese pig, French pig, German pig, Indian, meaning a pig in Germany, okay? Right? Uh, presumably, Chinese doesn't do that. Oh, okay. I, 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 my, my Mandarin is zero, but my assumption, uh, there are some strange things in Chinese compared to English, like you can't say the sea is black, the sea looks black, because the sea is kind of blue. I, 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 someone was telling me this, it sounded very weird to me, but it, 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 it's, um, there are certain things where, you know, there are kind of rules attached. Mm -hmm. And that was a case where he was, he was actually put on leave and the company lost some sort of contract for the Chinese government because of the fuss. Now, it, this gets slightly worrying, which is that things you can say in your native language can kind of put you at risk of losing your job because someone misunderstands them. Uh, I mean, that, that becomes, you know, you're setting a very, very high bar in terms of restricting language in that you say, not only can you not say something that's unpleasant, but you can't say something which could be misinterpreted as unpleasant. Right. It becomes extremely difficult for me to use, you know, any kind of metaphor at that point. Right. Because, I mean, there is, you know, uh, if, if you said good news for, you know, bad news for British pigs, okay, in mm -hmm. English, no one would take that as having any kind of, you know, uh, no, no one would connect the two words and think it meant anything. But, uh, but, there, the, but there you go, you know, that, that, that's one of those things we'll have to contend with in a globalized world. Yeah, so, so here's a question I had for you from Michael Driver himself, and he said that we have a problem with nudging. Right? So we learn by making often painful errors and surviving them, and pain demands a response. So the lesson stays learned, but nudging doesn't, ha nudging doesn't have the same lasting effect, and it doesn't allow people to learn from their mistakes. What would the response be? Uh, the only thing I would argue is that a large part of what I do in nudging is... First of all, it's an inquiry, okay? Right. 
And one of the things I think that is dangerous, um, which I would say in alchemy, is that nudging people away from an instinctive behavior towards one that economists believe to be rational, okay, is a dangerous practice until you've delved very deeply into why the humans may be behaving in an irrational way to begin with. I mean, I always argue that, yeah, from a strictly economic point of view, then you should save for your pension very early in life as soon as you're 25. I might argue from that far more important when you're 25 than your pension is finding a decent life partner right. and having a reasonably nice apartment might be far more important in securing that aim than talking about your pension over a date okay. at, a, at a low-cost restaurant okay right. Right. so so the idea that the, the fact that actually young people spend a disproportionate amount of money on some form of signaling okay maybe simply a you know a, what you might call an, an evolutionary necessity and therefore you know I, one of the things i'd always say is when people are irrational i always i always look to evolution for the explanation first yeah. and then but the second thing is of course um, the very fact that things are designed by economists and that the economists are very influential in the way incentives are designed and in the way programs are designed mm -hmm. tends to be in some cases an anti-nudge because it's trying to get someone to do something in a way that isn't consistent with the grain of human nature. So the argument is simply, if you understand the grain of human nature, you can design a program which is natural and instinctive. Right. Uh, my, my, my argument will be on things like pension tax rebates. Okay, uh, That probably falls foul of the ergodicity question, which is incentivizing someone to do something with a benefit that you will only see in at the age of 55 is not the way to incentivize a behavior now. Right. Okay. Right. It's, it's simply no marketer would ever have done that. You see, oh, it's only economists who did. Your argument when you said that uh, if they rebuild the train station and it saves me 40 minutes, but it takes 10 years to get it, I don't really care. Right? No, no, no. no, no. I, I mean, I have to say, you know, uh, that, that's one of my great beefs with high speed too, which is if there's a 10 year wait for a 50 minute saving, Time saving. My other ergodicity point there, by the way, is that one of no one looked at the Concord from an ergodicity point of view, which is that no one's going to be crossing the Atlantic all that often. Right. The number of people for whom Concord is a game changer is incredibly few. There is one benefit. The second thing they didn't look at is that the westbound case for Concord is quite strong. You can leave Heathrow at nine o'clock in the morning and arrive at New York at eight. The eastbound case is disastrous because what you actually want is a nine hour overnight flight. Okay. Okay. So actually what the, the, the solution to the Concorde ultimately is a plane that's incredibly fast when it's flying West, but unbelievably slow when it goes East because the two return flights on the Concorde from New York, if you look at it, okay, with slow planes, there are only two day flights back from, uh, New York on British Airways, one from Newark, one from JFK, okay? Uh, there are loads and loads of overnight flights, mm. right? Now, the problem with the Concorde is I think the two return flights were something like 10 in the morning where you got in at eight hours later, it would be, wouldn't it, five plus three? Uh, so you'd basically get in at uh, six o'clock in the afternoon, and there must have been another one which was like midday, and you got in at eight or something right. like that. Now, both of those are basically day flights. You lose a whole day, right? You're on a right. plane. You're not in the office, you're on a plane. Right. Okay. Now, the logical way to actually fly when you're flying west to east is overnight. Right. You can sleep, wake up, yeah. and you have a day to yourself. And it's an important question, actually, which is one environmental thing we need to do is we need to prevent airlines. Uh, what I'd like to do is prevent airlines from discounting return flights relative to single flights. Because 
for me as a Brit, the natural way to have a business meeting in Frankfurt, to be honest, is if, if such a service existed, will be late night sleeper from London at 10 p.m., get into Frankfurt at eight o'clock in the morning, have a day's meeting, fly home. Right. Okay. I don't want to spend two nights away from home for one day meeting. I'd much rather have the overnight sleeper than either fly out and get a hotel or, which is a whole load of hassle, or get up at five o'clock in the morning to get to Heathrow. Now, the part of the problem with that is, was there no sleeper business in Europe because the airlines made it vastly more expensive to buy a one-way ticket than a return? Mm. Now, low-cost airlines, of course, don't do that. Pre premium airlines do. Uh, then, I mean, one environmental thing which would make a bit, bit of a difference would be at least if you could make half your journey train-based. Right, right. So the thing that's interesting about that is uh, I was trying to think about your earlier point of view about not doing things against the grain of human nature. And then I thought about the concept of Tinder, where you're just swiping right to quote-unquote match a date. But what's really happening there is the courtship, the anxiety, the difficulty of actually mustering the courage. All those costs are removed and the costs are basically zero because you can just keep swiping. And uh, what I've noticed is that some of the studies I've read is all people who participate in that economy, quote unquote, the Tinder economy, are miserable. And it's because the signaling uh, in that regard, the, the, uh, as you said, the sincerity is diminished to the point where it's nothing. And all you're doing is trading bits. I like this person. I like this person. And it's just back and forth, back and forth. And because it's in instinctively against human nature and evolution, everybody's basically worse off for it. So the price, I suppose, of signaling male sincerity is a massive risk of rejection and social embarrassment. Exactly. So, so the point is that there are, there are guys out there who will, you know, who are basically, and, and women, I suppose, you know, uh, but uh, how do you know whether the guy is really into you or whether he's trying it on? Right. Okay. Well, in the old days, you knew because, first of all, your, um, your proposal was visible Right. Okay. And therefore, you couldn't chat up everybody in the bar without becoming known as Pervy Dave. Right? Right, right, right. Whereas when it's invisible and has a low cost of visible rejection or social embarrassment. Right. Okay. And has a low cost in terms of the unbelievable physical pain men feel when trying to determine whether a woman is, is interested or not. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah. If you take away that, then what you're going to do is you're going to reduce friction in the market and reducing friction in a market is not always a good thing. Right. Because um, it's assumed to be a good thing if you're an economist, of course, that right. anything that reduces market friction and improves market efficiency. But there are some markets where you want them to be pretty inefficient right. um, simply because you don't want a bunch of tire kickers and time wasters. Right. So you know, that's why when you sell a secondhand car, in a sense, you, do, you know, you don't want the cost of dealing with 400 people who are just basically shifting around, wasting your time. Right. You exactly. know, you, you know it's, it's why actually, I mean, I had, I had a very interesting case, which is, um, that, you know, sometimes an advertisement is much more effective if it actually states a negative. Because the only people, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying um, to think, that's why political advertisings are always negative. They attack the other side instead of... But also attacking yourself can be a good strategy because it actually, it means that, I mean, I, I've had this debate about this, which is should property ads actually say what are the downsides of the property? Because for some people, a downside isn't a downside. If you're, if you're a plane spotter living in the approach path to Heathrow Airport is a bonus, right? Right, okay. right, of course, of course. Okay, so <laughs> um, within reason, I guess. <laughs> So, so what you really want if you're buying a house is you want an attribute which everybody else hates, which right. you don't mind. 
right. or which you actually like, you know. I mean, it's very interesting. Uh, my parents-in-law once didn't buy a house because it was next to a pub. It was next to a really good pub. I mean, was, this wasn't like a pub where people had a fight. This was a country pub, gastro pub. And I was like, I can't believe you. Well, sorry, let me get this straight. You didn't buy the house because it's next door to a pub. They said, well, if they got an extension, there might be noise and it might disturb us. I'm going, going living next to a pub is fantastic. <laughs> you know, who could want a better house than one next to a pub? So, you know, so it is one of those interesting things where actually being honest is, is possibly valuable. But also, yeah, the, the example where friction may be worthwhile hmm. is... Um, there are loads and loads of cases where simply making things easier makes them less discriminating, I guess. And um, the most extreme case I ever had was a guy who went to buy a Bristol cup from the only Bristol showroom, which is on Kensington High Street. And the band said, um, this is almost extraordinary now. He said, uh, do you have a garage? And the chap said, no, 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 I don't have a garage. I'm thinking of building one. He said, well, you may want to come back when you've built one, because if you don't have a proper place to store the car, we're not that interested in selling it to you. Oh, wow. So, I mean, if you want to create real scarcity, for example. Right. Um, and so, no, I, I mean, I, I, I worry about that a bit, because, you know, I mean, you know, what what the effects are in terms of low friction relationships in the long term mm. is yet to be known perhaps i mean it's very interesting because i often look at things i have i've had two friends who are, uh, believe in polyamory and my argument is always that polyamory is maximizing where you should be satisficing right okay and my argument about polyamory is the reason to avoid polyamory is not because it's not great when it works i bet when it works it's fantastic right right the problem i've always noticed with polyamory is that when it goes wrong it's a living hell right okay it's uh, you know it's basically when you're in that kind of relationship you, you're sitting on a time bomb and it's kind of nuclear of and so the the, the the point to make is that you know some degree of satisficing in relationships is probably a good idea and therefore friction is probably useful in the forging of relationships simply in that you see that okay if a relationship is not easily replaceable i will invest more in the one i currently have right okay. you know if this is a terrible thing to say okay but if it were really really easy to to replace your car okay so if uh, now it would be good for the car industry it would be a catastrophe, I think, for the environment, actually. One of the reasons is that we don't change our car is that, you know, the effort of going through all the, oh, God, I've got to sort out the insurance, I've got to sort out the, oh, God, the car's fine, okay? Right, right. <laughs> and so the duration of which we kept our cars is partly due to the replacement cost. And so, this is, I hope my wife's not listening to this, this is the most unbelievably unromantic way of looking at relationships. But equally, the extent to which you valet your car, the extent to which you invest in your, you know, in looking after it, right. um, is, is, is not necessarily increased by making the, making the thing easily replaceable. So I want to I I ask you a question, because I've been dying to get your point of view on this particular thing. What I've noticed is that, you have the world where you sell products that cost money to, to build, distribute, you know, service, return, all that stuff. And the old way of doing it had to take into consideration all those factors. And then out comes something like Google, where the cost of quote-unquote advertising is throw the fish in the, in, the, in the water and just collect all the whatever comes along with it. And if there's some trash, so be it. But that's distorted everybody's point of view because now, instead of doing what it is you recommend, instead of even considering alchemy, Everybody's default standard is just shoot. 
a big net and whatever you grab will be profitable enough that it'll, uh, it'll stand the test of, of the cost-benefit analysis, quote-unquote. Because like, one great one thing about expensive advertising was it forced people to target it with a reasonable amount of discrimination. And therefore, you had a reasonable right. assumption that the thing was relevant to you. Now, what right. I noticed about online advertising is it's either hyper-relevant I, I've been looking at Latvian hotels and suddenly I get a lot of advertising for Lat Latvian hotels or it seems totally irrelevant. Right. Now, the best advertising, I would argue, is advertising which is creatively brilliant, okay, but which is targeted quite well. It's not targeted indiscriminately, okay? There's no point in going to people who are, to be honest, okay, there's not much point in going to people in Japan trying to encourage them to visit Latvia, okay? Because it's, if they're going to go to Europe, they're probably going to go to Paris, Milan, Milan, London, okay? But an ad which reaches me, who had never thought of going to Latvia, and persuades me to go to Latvia, is a much more valuable ad than, than an ad that targets people who have already been searching for Latvian hotels. Right, right. And at the extreme level of efficiency, you reach a level where someone said, you know, it's like handing out 20% off money off vouchers on pizza to people who are already queuing for the pizza restaurant. Right, right. Where you have this wonderful rate of return, apparently. It's incredibly efficient, mm -hmm. but it's not actually effective. Right, right. And so my interesting question, I asked this the other day, is let's say you have three types of ad, okay? You have a bad ad, brilliantly targeted. You have a good ad, brilliantly targeted. You have a good ad, reasonably targeted, mm -hmm. okay? The best ad is actually the third. A good ad, reasonably targeted. Because, because a really good creative approach will actually, A, it will do its own targeting, okay? Okay. Uh, you know, when you, when you write a great, you know, when David Ogilvy wrote at 60 miles an hour, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it appeared in the Wall Street Journal. But it also, the headline basically said, okay, we're talking to people who are loaded, okay, but also really interested in the high quality automobile and, you know, and so forth. And, right. you know, and status. And there were a few really interesting details about it, by the way. The fact that there's a woman driving the car was important because most people thought a Rolls Royce was a chauffeur driven car. Right. So there's a whole load of other stuff going on in that ad, actually. Um, but the point is, you don't want to target it so perfectly that all it does is, is reach people who are in a very narrow car buying category already, because you're then diminishing the value of your creative work. Right. A that ad probably still works, mm. by the way. Okay, so actually, 60 miles an hour, the loudest sound in the new Rolls-Royce is the ticking of the electric clock. What is it that makes the best Rolls-Royce, the, the Rolls-Royce the best car in the world? There is something like this, simply patient attention to detail, says an eminent Rolls-Royce engineer. I think I can remember that headline more or less off pat. Now, there were probably like kids of Wall Street Journal readers who bought a Rolls-Royce 15 years later, partly because of, or 30 years later, partly because of that ad. Right. Now, you're never going to be able to attribute that, okay? You're never going to be able to measure it. Again, it comes into the what I call the probabilistic sphere, not the instrumental sphere. But it's still worth having, you know? Right. right. And so your point to that is that you don't want to sing to the choir. They're already, they already converts. You want to get new converts who never knew you existed. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Right. And so you know, there's a danger that really good advertising becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, by the way, because nearly always when you launch a product, you found your target audience isn't quite who you thought it was. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's very easy. Now, there are two things you need in marketing. You do need a kind of user imagery, but the user imagery of the target audience are not the same thing. When you sell, when you sell small cars from new, you generally show a 33-year-old woman driving it, okay? 
Mm -hmm. uh, the actual purchasers tend to be retirees. Mm. They want something small, easy. But you don't show a retired person driving the car because then no 33-year-old will buy it. Right. Okay. Um, and so, so, you know, there's a lot going on, again, at the unconscious level, which is, uh, which I think is, we are throwing that all away because advertising suffering from the doorman fallacy. Define it as the delivery of a message with maximal efficiency. And it's, it's almost based on that economic uh, assumption of uh, stable preferences as well. You see, perfect information and stable preference. And so... Um, so how accurate do you think the Mad Men show is? Um, well, <laughs> I've got a lovely answer to this. So... Joel and I think it's Mary Beth Raffleson are both copywriters who work with David Ogilvy okay. and they he and she they must be both getting on for their 80s although if you meet them you think they're about 60 they're most extraordinary couple I had a meal with them at Gibson Steakhouse um, right near Chicago Hare Airport, uh, which is, by the way, I can recommend um, thoroughly. And um, they're adorable and fantastic and brilliant. And I said to them, okay, you were there. You know, you were there in the late, probably not the late 50s. Yeah, yeah actually, they were. Late 50s, early 60s, you were there. Was it really like that? Right. And Joel said it wasn't anything like that. I mean, the whole portrayal of the, you know, the philandering, the drunkenness, you know, the alcoholism, the sort of thing, it's a complete exaggeration. And his wife said, what do you mean, dear? It was exactly like that. <laughs> so, so the only answer I can say is that it was not remotely like that, and it was exactly like that. Now, right, interestingly, right, right. it probably varies on where you... By the way, I mean, again, it's worth remembering that it all depended where you were, and there would have been agencies which would have been wild, and there would have been agencies which would have been astoundingly conservative. So, for instance... Uh, J. Walter Thompson, I remember uh, Jeremy Bullmore, who also under remembers that era. He said, you've got to remember that um, uh, the U.S. was surprisingly puritanical back then in many ways. He said there were many agencies that wouldn't take alcohol clients. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, we forget that. There are lots and lots of agencies which wouldn't take a spirits client or even possibly a beer client because it was disreputable. At the same time, he remembers that the, the J. Walter Thompson New York people came over for the J. Walter Thompson Christmas party. They had a board meeting or something there. And of course, this being the 50s, the wives came along. And the wives reported back disapprovingly, the New York wives, that they'd seen that the Christmas party at J. Walter Thompson London, there had been rather a lot of dancing. <laughs> right so it's 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 incredibly complicated and it, it it comes from a fantastic phrase which again jeremy himself reported as one of those phrases that that actually is is both kind of wrong and brilliant like the woman who said that's that's your gdp not mine right you know it's kind of wrong but it actually contains a fantastic, fantastic and someone once said to jeremy bullmore the early 1960s were much more influenced by the 1950s than they were by the 1970s yeah. and um, <laughs> i think you see what i mean I and mean, obviously that's kind of an absurd sentence in one sense but actually we probably forget that which right. is that you know much more about the 1960s was men wearing bowler hats to work Right. Uh, in London than it was flower power and people dressed like, you know, the front album covered as Sergeant Pepper and so forth. And so, right. you know, I think the answer is, uh, I think that, that they provided the accurate answer, which is it was exactly like that and it was nothing like that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, so what's interesting now that I've noticed, and, and, and this is where uh, in, the, in the organization I work at, there's this constant conversation about efficiency and all that stuff. And I always remind them of, of what it is you said, which was that, if you're efficient, 
at the wrong thing, it doesn't matter. But it still yeah. sounds good, right? It still sounds good. So how do you... There's a great, there's a great Peter Drucker phrase, which is nothing is more disastrous than to see a company doing something efficiently, which it should not be doing at all. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, absolutely spot on. Well, one of the things I think we need to understand is that actually capitalism is a multi-layered fractal thing. Okay. Okay. And economics, by attempting to make our understanding of capitalism kind of monolithic, rather like physics, has actually made capitalism worse. And I mean worse environmentally, worse uh, socially, and worse in terms of its commercial uh, returns. Okay. Right. All dimensions, I think it's made it worse. Um, uh, the way I'd separate, we've got to start separating things out and say that there is an element of capitalism which is purely transactional. It's like kind of economics thinks it is. You know, I need to buy paper cups. It's a commodity. I can define perfectly in advance what constitutes an adequate paper cup. Blah, 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 blah. I, can, I can basically put your procurement department on that and they'll do a fairly good job. Right. But there are whole aspects of it which are either relational or probabilistic. Okay, uh, the relational side is that actually there's a huge difference between buying something from someone ten uh, ten times and buying something buying ten things from ten different people, right. which is that the projected value of a relationship is something in which, with enough margin, the supplier is free to invest in the relationship in ways over which they have discretion. And since they know much more about what they do than you do and spend much more time concentrating on it, their capacity to innovate in areas which might be essential to your well-being, okay, shouldn't be frozen out by turning the relationship into a transactional one. Very extreme level, okay, in, in any kind of repeat capitalism, there's a large component of stuff which is implicit and unwritten in any contract, but it's there implicitly. And you can very easily turn a short-term profit by basically ignoring the explicit part of the relationship and merely exploiting the explicit legal part. So an example would be, I always use the same taxi firm locally. And the reason is that if they know I'm reasonably valuable as a punter, okay, when it snows, they're under a bit more ob obligation to me than they are to a random person who can't get their car out of the garage, right? And that's understood. It's, it, I, you know, I, I haven't got them contracted on this. It doesn't say spend £500 a year with beeline cabs and you benefit from our snow service, but it's implicit. It's there. Right. And if you have a relationship with a client as an ad agency uh, and the, the relationship is reasonably generous, part of your margin should be spent in investing in things where they could actually do better, which they'll never ask you to do, or which may be impossible to charge for. Right. Right. So part of the role of an ad agency is if I, I, if I have an idea that's worth five million quid, but can be explained in a sentence, okay, how the sodding hell do we invoice for that? Right. Well, the right. reason we used to do it is because if you do one of those a year, they won't fud fuddle about too much about whether you're making 16% or 13 and a half. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. That's how it used to work. You take okay. procurement in and it turns the whole thing transactional, not relational. Right. Then there's a third part of capitalism, which I'd argue is just probabilistic, which is there's an additional cost, which is it's kind of R&D. You know, mm. it's we've got to waste a certain amount of money because although in the short term this money won't pay off, it's essential for us continually to find out not just maximize the value of what we don't know but find out what we don't for, for, not, not just to exploit the value of what we already know but to actually find out what we don't and to essentially 
um, uh, what you might call make the business resilient against changes in environment, competitive set, everything else. So that's interesting you bring that up because as soon as you were talking about that, three examples popped into my head. So you have Apple, whose very DNA is to build stuff and then put software inside as a, as a quote-unquote heart and soul of it. Then you have Amazon, who tried to come up with their Kindle phone and it didn't work so well. Then you have Microsoft, who is now trying to become like Apple and failing miserably at it, even though they're hiring quote-unquote the designer people and they're trying to make laptops as nice as the Apple ones. It, does, it just seems like they're not able to break through. Is it because of the perception in the market? Uh, a bit of that is perception. I mean, tragically, I had a Windows phone briefly, and I loved it. And my daughter's phone broke, and I gave her the Windows phone. Mm. And she kind of tragically admitted that the interface was lovely, but that, A, there were about five weird apps, like Snapchat wasn't on it or something. Right. Um, uh, but also, basically, because all her friends had bloody iPhones, and she's a sheep. Okay, so a large part of it is actually, you may argue that for Microsoft to actually acquire that heart and soul is going to take, there's going to be a big lag. And actually, to be honest, the Surface books look pretty damn nice to me. Fair enough. You know, I mean, there was the wonderful phrase when they launched the Windows phone that somebody said on Twitter, presumably they called it Windows phone because Hitler phone and Nazi phone weren't available or already (laughs) trademarked. They weren't weren't easily hashtagable at the time. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know what's, what's, what's funny about that is it, it speaks to your concept of lagging and uh, latency with regards to the Rolls Royce because what you ended up noticing is that when, you, when, I, went, when I was first involved with, with the computer world, I had Windows machines and I was going to university and one of my friends said to me, buy a Mac and if you don't like it, I'll buy it off of you so you don't have any risk to take of it. So that's how confident he was in it. When I bought it and I went into my first class, I remember as I was walking into the lecture hall, all I saw were Macs. Yeah. And so those groups of people are now people who are professionally working with me. And it's very rare amongst my group of friends to see somebody who doesn't have a Mac. I'm weirdly an Android phone user, which in the advertising industry basically me, me, makes me a pervert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's a very weird problem, by the way, which is uh, my hunch is that actually ultimately that the uh, the the Android platform will overtake an, uh, Apple through just a, a greater plethora of innovation and experimentation. Okay. The problem I also have is that it will be very, my wife, my two children have iPhones. Okay. When their phones ring and I have to answer them, I go practically insane because everything's just a little bit different. If it were totally different, I'd have no trouble at all. Okay. But the worst thing you can do is move from an interface which is, to an interface which is quite like your old interface, but is different in 15 or 20 trivial little ways. Right. And so that transition is arguably harder to make than a transition to an entirely new interface. Right. Because because you're jumping between system one and system two all the time. Right. Okay. If I have a totally new interface, I go, okay, I've got to work this one out, you know, Mm. Okay. Whereas if you give me an interface which is half familiar and half not, it's rather like having one of those languages which is quite similar but not identical. Right. And it right. gets very, very messy when because people go, "Shit, am I?" You know, I think I think it's true that if you speak Plattdeutsch and English, Plattdeutsch being the, the the German dialect in the far north, where you say "What is that?" rather than "Was ist das?" Okay. <laughs> Okay. It, it's actually a bit of a mind. F- Sorry, I was going to say. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. Because you're essentially not quite sure. Whereas if you speak two languages which are totally different, right. you know, nobody starts using Anglo-Saxon words in Italian. I guess. 
right, right. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing. Yeah. Well, see, that's interesting because that reminds me of your example of buying the, the linen sheets. You either want the very... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go the whole hog or don't bother. Yeah. Yeah. Bother. yeah. No, but, but what's interesting about that is, so now that you're starting to notice the quote-unquote globalization of the entire planet, where everything sort of looks the same, because I think they all copy each other to a certain extent. I know. That distinction aspect of it, which is what you're talking about, about targeting a niche, is probably the more winning strategy going forward because everything's starting to converge. Well, well the problem is, is that, yeah, I mean, th there's a cost to this, which is economists love it. it Non-Austrian economists, I totally reserve all criticism. Uh, the Austrian school and, and Hayek strike me as fundamentally on the money, by the way, mm -hmm. as a marketer. Uh, they would do, because, of course, they appreciate marketing properly. So there's a degree of self-interest there. But non-Hayekian economists view globalization as glorious efficiency. It's also diminishing experimentation. Because if you think about it, French cars, when I was a kid, were totally different. Now, you know, probably a lot of them were bloody awful compared to German cars. But on the other hand, they produced the Citroen DS and the Citroen de Chevaux and the Renault 4, which were totally weird outlier kind of cars, okay? Mm. And at some point, in a, in a weird world, strangely, an electric Citroen 2CV might be a rather fantastic car to make now, actually. Well, um, but, but, but there's something there which, I, we, which we've lost because everything is becoming slightly more homogeneous. And, it's, um, and so the pace of innovation is possibly going to slow if we're not careful simply because when you lots of things are developed for one context you know so the volkswagen beetle was developed by hitler okay to be a people's car right and in latin america it was a people's car because it was the only affordable car in brazil in 1968 in america it was a counter-signaling car for cool kids at yale who didn't want to look like their parents right. and so this weird thing about you know if everything's if everything has to work for the the lowest common denominator, actually we'll end up with kind of less choice in a funny kind of way. And it was when things were manufactured for local purposes or with local constraints. Mm. A lot of the time, yeah, it was a downside, but sometimes you actually, it was the very absurdity of the thing that made the thing brilliant. Right. I mean, okay. so, you know, you know, there's something, there's something interesting going on there anyway, which is just that it's scale. What we need to understand is very simply that, that, that scale ha and also speed, by the way, and all the things which are considered the benefits of globalization, they come with benefits and they come with costs. And we've been far better at quantifying the benefits than we have quantifying the costs. So for example, broadly speaking, free trade increases gdp however it imposes costs incredibly unevenly and if i'm you know if i'm to be blunt about this one of the things that nobody really spotted which they should have done is that there's a sector of the western population which has been hit by a triple well quadruple whammy actually which is the strength of trade unions has fallen Maybe that's a good thing in itself, okay? Right? Okay. Then those jobs which they happen to have in particular areas of the UK are all the jobs, unlike jobs in London, most susceptible to three things, automation, yeah. offshoring, or wow. being taken by immigrants who will undercut you. Okay, so if you add those four things together, you might argue that actually any one of them would have been a good thing, okay? Right. <laughs> the problem is that all those things which economists thought were great, generally economists with tenure, by the way, okay, okay. Um, the, the costs, the, the benefits were blurry and spread, and the costs were, fell a very specific group of people.
Right. So if you think about that, you know, your those typical jobs would be, you know, okay, you can get someone overseas to do the same job for less, you can import someone to do the same job for less, or you can get a machine to do the same job for less. Or okay. you can do all four at once. Or, or, or all three. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then actually, the point is that, I mean, one of the things that was never looked at in the whole European Union debate is that um, the fact that the UK speaks English is an extraordinary distortion in the world of freedom of movement, okay? Because if you look at it symmetrically, if I move to, there are, there are tiny, no, that's not, okay, I could work for an international company in Germany or Switzerland speaking only English, okay. If I move to Romania, which is very nice, I'd end up sweeping the streets, basically, okay. Whereas to someone who moves to an English-speaking country, A, you already speak the language, one. B, your value to any prospective employer is hugely enhanced by learning the language. Right. So there's an asymmetry there of movement. It's a bit like, okay, if you, if, if you had a rule which is that, think about it in terms of goods as, as distinct from people, okay? Every British item that's exported to Europe needs to have a special catalytic converter added, which is the English, which is the, the local language. Everything manufactured in Europe comes with the catalytic converter pre-installed. That's a kind of asymmetry in trade. Okay, and so language patently has an enormous effect on movement. Uh, also, the fact that um, th this this is, by the way, I, I mean, this, this is coming from someone who's basically pro-immigration. Mm. That um, there's a problem fundamentally, which is not the, the quantity of immigration. Okay, uh, it's the fact that it all goes to the same places. Now, if you think about it, okay, okay. nobody basically leaves, let's say, a poor country in Africa with the intention of moving to Somerset, right? And the argument is, it, no, I'll, I'll be absolutely honest about this. I'll look at myself, okay? If I were to leave the UK, there are only two reasons I do it. One, lifestyle choice, okay. in which case probably Sydney would win hands down, I guess. I don't know. Maybe Canada, maybe, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, Austin, Texas. I don't know what would be okay. But if I were to leave the UK, there's only, there are only about three cities in the world that are worth going to, which are basically New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Okay? Because if I'm going to go through all the costs of leaving, washing right. machines don't suffer this, right? right. Washing, washing machines go where they're needed, okay? And you know, they don't go, oh, God, I miss all my old washing machines back in Dresden. I'm feeling right. so lonely. Okay, right. Okay. Right. Now, as a result, disproportionately, people will go to the places of maximal opportunity, which tends to be megacities. Right. Okay. And so the, the, the problem there you have, which is an interesting one, is that's because there's a huge cost to migrating. And so the argument is, to use a phrase, might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. Okay. And the, argu the argument there is, if I'm going to go to all this trouble, it's only really worth doing if I have a place where I can multiply my salary by five. Right, right. Okay. And that is not an evenly spread class of places. Now, I could probably, in New, now, not so, it would be an act of absolutely appalling arrogance for me to say, if I move to Los Angeles or New York, I can multiply my salary by five. Right. But I might, right. okay? Right. Okay. Whereas if I move to Paris, my chance of multiplying my salary by five is zero basically but not zero but it's it, it, okay so the whole thing isn't really understood nothing is really understood it's all looked at in this weird aggregate way which doesn't really understand the dynamics of human life over time so so um, let, me, let me see if i can challenge you on that a little bit okay i finally found an area where we may have a difference of opinion so first, okay. so first here's the thing um I, I like the idea of a hayek and what i've been doing with it this is just a side anecdote 
is I usually share a, a, a Hayek co- quote with a picture of Salma Hayek just to get people to read it. <laughs> it tends to work out very well in that regard. But with regards to immigration, here's, here's the way I, I, I sort of uh, look at that situation because I'm from Afghanistan and, and sometimes I hear my, my parents talk about it and my uncles and whatnot. And they're always talking about, um, you know, these, these Chinese companies or these American companies that want to come in, they, they, they're investing, but they should hire Afghan um, uh, labor. And so my, my, you know, their initial argument is, I thought about it for a long time, but it doesn't sound like a good argument. It's like, well, why, why would they hire Afghan? They, just, they should hire the best. And their argument was, and I, I have to formulate it for them because they didn't necessarily think of it in these lines, but here's the argument. Any, per, any citizen of any country has an affordance of what we would call an asset. So my yes. ability to work is an asset for me to provide for my family. Yep. I'm happy to compete against Ember for a job. That's cool. I yep. am not happy to compete against 1,000 people with 1,000 PhDs. As long as you're influxing them into my area, now I can compete with one guy, but I can't compete with 10,000 guys, right? So this whole idea of immigration to allow the flow to come in takes my asset and converts it to a commodity to my supposed employer or potential client who can trade it at a much lower cost, therefore leaving me in a much uh, less... Uh, advantageous, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you, one thing in which I think your parents are right is that transfer of skills through migration is one of the hugely valuable things, by the way. Right. Uh, diasporas are unbelievably valuable right. uh, because people, I mean, I mean a, a large part of the Chinese economic miracle has probably been actually affected by people from Hong Kong and Taiwan who knew how to build a five-star hotel already, okay? So transfer of knowledge uh, via movement uh, is uh, hugely valuable. And that's why I'm in favor of it. This is why I'm totally in favor of it. I, mean, I think London's a great place precisely because you get stimulus from absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a fantastic thing. The, the only point I would make is that the, the incentives for people to go somewhere mm-hmm. um, are... Academia makes it a bit broader because you have universities all over the place. Okay, um, but in in the commercial world, uh, the logic is if I'm going to take this step, you you also get I suppose you also get a very I guess a very strong winner takes all effect or very 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 strong extreme effects. Right. right. And um, uh, and and to some extent, I mean, one of the important things is of course we we should be able to use technology to to solve this problem a bit better in some way. Right. Um, but my simple point is that it's the, 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 where the EU was weird is that it equated freedom of movement of people with freedom of movement of, of goods. Right. Okay. And the, th- there's a really important point about freedom of movement, by the way, which is you only get a chance to do it for about 10 years of your life for most people. Right. You're either, if you're very, very rich, you can do it because you've got the funds to do it. Uh, if you're um, childless and between 18 and, you know, 30, you can do it. If you're short of money and you require networks of people around you for childcare and support, mm. it's, it's a very, very hard thing to do. Right. So it's, it's a slightly asymmetric thing in terms of, you know, who it, who it advantages. So you might argue, I mean, Paul Collier looked at this and thought that the fair way to do migration is actually by lottery. Right. It's just kind of interesting. The, the um, no, no. The, my point about it, by the way, is weird because I'm pro. I'm entirely pro for all sorts of cultural and economic reasons. But I think that the pro case was too. Paul Collier's book, I think it's called Exodus, is interesting because it's a really, really smart economist looking at it in both directions. And one of his points is that no one looks at the cost to the countries these people leave. 
Right. Because if you, if you have people who are essentially trained in West Africa as doctors right. and they hoof it to Los Angeles, which is an unbelievably logical thing to do economically, by the way, okay, right? Because, um, you, know, you know, five years in Los Angeles is, is essentially five lifetimes in West Africa in right. terms of your earning power. That's a problem. Right. And we're never talking about it like this. We're going, gosh, isn't it wonderful? I, you know, my, my daughters were both you know, uh, brought into the world by a Nigerian doctor, and I'm really, really delighted. But equally, there is one less doctor in Nigeria right, right, right. who has probably been trained to some extent at the expense of the Nigerian state. Of course. Of course. So, so, you know, they, they, we've got to be a bit... We all, um, you know, I, I think what happened is it became one of those things where everybody had to be black or white about it, mm. and nearly everything in life involves trade-offs, and we just need to be conscious of the trade-offs. You can still come out of that, by the way, being very much pro, and, and so you should, right. and you should, you know... But, um, I mean, you know, I, I, also th I also think, by the way, that uh, as a Brit, I mm. found EU freedom of movement weird, because Britain isn't really... I mean... I mean uh, I, I don't see why you should actually give a Greek preference over a Sikh. It doesn't seem to make sense to me as a Brit because w our mindset isn't in that kind of, you know, Western European bubble very much. I mean, it's very complicated. If you live in the Anglophone, if, if you live in Anglophonia, the yeah. great, I mean, they're, they're huge. If, if you look at Brits, okay, we know more about, you know, Brits can actually watch the West Wing, which uses technical terms like HUD for housing and urban development. Right. And we're basically there watching this, okay? And we understand this, okay? Um, so our brains are, a huge amount of our brain time is, is spent kind of in mid-Atlantic. So it's very complicated to say, you know, whether as a Brit you're a European or whether you're something else. So Simply, hold on. Let me ask you a question, though. Okay, because I've, I've had this experience talking to British people and German people. There seems to be a layer of guilt. I'm not saying that that's what you're experiencing, but I'm saying there, there seems to be this thread of guilt over the colonialism of the Brits and the Germans with the world wars and whatnot, that they're much more likely to overcompensate, to overcorrect for the previous generation's guilt than they actually should rationally be expressing. Do you consider that to be a valid criticism? Well, uh, uh, the Norwegians say that of the Swedes. The, the, the Swedes, let's say, had a bit of an iffy record in letting the Germans through to invade Norway, okay? Which, right. should we say, you know, compared to, say, you know, the 1976 Euro, 79 Eurovision contest wasn't the finest hour or whatever it was, okay? But, um, but they argue, the Norwegians claim that if you want to help refugees, it is 14 times more effective to provide aid um, close to the borders of the country to people who have just left. Right. than it is to actually allow people uh, allow a far smaller group of people to move to, to Sweden. Okay. And the Norwegians accuse the Swedes of this. They say that essentially it's, a, uh, it, it's done for reasons of what you might call yeah, compensation, if okay. you like, okay. uh, not really through really hard-headed hard arguments about how do we spend a dollar to best improve human happiness. And... Um, so I, th you know, I think I think I think you're being very kind to the Brits. I'm not sure we experience as much post-colonial guilt as we should. I mean, I was interested to read in, in *Sapiens*. I don't know if you read that. His view of the whole thing was that it was unbelievably complicated, right? Right. And there was patently value exchange, and there was skills transfer involved, and there was also grotesque exploitation and you know, pretty nasty stuff. Let me tell you um, a little side of that. As an Afghan, of course, you, you are the one country that successfully resisted this by destroying the entire English force that tried to invade Kabul, leaving, I think, one man surviving. Is that right? 
I, I think your numbers are correct, but here's a, yeah, yeah. I think I think there was one doctor who actually made it back alive. So I don't think I think if anything, you should. Be, <laughs> I don't think you have anything to worry about on that score. No, no. But here, let me let me tell you a side story of that because I, I, I like the counter uh, the counter point of view, and the counter point of view from the Afghans are actually quite different. What they say is, look, yes, technically we didn't allow them to quote unquote colonialize our country, but look what we lost. Look at uh, where India is now. Look where, where other countries where they had their footprint, their education system, their, their system of governance. And it's not like it's all negative. They're, we also, yes, we avoided the negativity and the harshness and the cruelty. Granted, that's, that nobody's going to argue that. But none of the positives came in either. And so as a consequence, look how far behind we're left but because of that particular quote-unquote we won the, the the battle, but did we really lose the war, so to speak, right? Because I suppose, I mean, those reasons may be as much geographical as avoiding, you know, but, yeah, I suppose you could say that the cricket-curry exchange right. was the most valuable, uh, um, the most val the greatest value exchange in history, really, wasn't it? Because neither of us was going to come up with those things on our own, okay? The likelihood, of, the likelihood of 19th century Britain coming up with curry and the likelihood of 19th century India coming up with cricket was a pretty... Pretty, pretty remote possibility, and you get these you get these other extraordinary things, which is which are my favourite phrase that um, if you go to a Japanese restaurant, there are curry options, which is a very right. Japanese style of curry. But that was apparently introduced by the British from India right. uh, to Japan, um, right. and of course, interesting tempura was introduced to the Japanese by the Portuguese. Vindaloo, which I think is actually a, a Portuguese word, which means wine of garlic is a kind of portuguese goan thing and fish and chips is probably which is mostly our national dish was actually i think it was sephardi jewish uh, people in the east end of london who had taken from portugal the business of frying things in batter uh, so it's really it's really cod tempura is <laughs> fish and chips so you know i mean you're absolutely right in that i suppose i mean i suppose the other thing was that um the you might have argued that trade would have done it anyway. I know, and that never occurred to me that Afghans would say such a thing, but having wiped out that army fairly decisively. And, 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 I'll, and I also want to point out something else, because a lot of the people have this um, uh, false assumption that the Afghans are much more warrior type than we're led to actually believe. And I'll tell you why that's unfair. It's obviously somewhat justified, but we also have lots of mountains that protect us. And when the yes. winter comes and you try to invade and the winter's there... We don't really much have to do very much against you because if we find where the warm spots are and you don't know where they are, nature will help us a lot more than, than, than the guns will, right? So you always have to be even-handed with these things. Are they much more likely to be warrior in their mindset? Sure, but to the drastic extent that it's made out to be, absolutely not. Was the fact that we didn't let the British come in and bring all the benefits that would have come along with it worth the trade-off in the long run? Mm, I don't know. If you ask a couple of generations later who were able to witness it all, the, the ones who have some sense of nuance and perspective can say, okay, yes, trade would have been ideal. We didn't have the trade and we didn't get the war and we got none of the benefits and we somewhat stayed off some of the negatives. But guess what? Even that we won that war and stayed off the negativities of colonialism and slavery and cruelty, whatever, that doesn't mean that it was all beds and roses because we had war criminals and we had internal fighting and all that other jazz. So it's not like there was no clean victor here. And overall, you could argue that we were not necessarily as better off as people like to be. That's all I'm saying. No, that's really, it's a, I mean, that's an incredibly honest mindset, just that people do a kind of cost-benefit analysis over those things rather than assuming everything's all good or all bad. Right, um, right. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess the technology transfer was valuable in some ways. 
uh, in terms of things like railways must have been hugely valuable. The legal system is a good one. You know, I think, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon legal system does seem to be on balance pretty good. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's probably, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering the legal system is a kind of technology. Democracy is a kind of technology. Um, and, um, uh, also, I suppose the advantage, which is, which is off, uh, this is an old-fashioned view, so it's probably rubbish, to be honest. It was the view in the 1950s, which is because British imperial power, uh, British uh, colonies tend to be further away, mm. they were less subject to direct government. So the French tended to rule North Africa with a very, very kind of uh, standardised model. Uh, which was essentially just extending France. They're, they're Platonists, the French, basically. It's, you know, the question is, it doesn't matter whether it works in practice, it's whether it works in a theory. Um, and so this is, I don't think this was a virtue. I think it was a product of distance as much as anything else. If you look at what the Brits did in Australia, New Zealand, India, it was a different intervention in every place. Right. You know, they, the, the, the thing, you know, you know, in, in, in you know, in many ways, I guess in India, you know, large power structures were left far, largely intact, etc., right. etc. Right. Um, and so there wasn't an attempt to particularly standardise what you did, and so there was probably something virtuous about that. Not, not. Th I, I don't mean there's any claim to virtue, but it was probably an accidental benefit that right. essentially the people had extraordinary local autonomy simply because they were such a long way away. And so it was. It was less top. It was less top down. Right. 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 Um, nature. Eh? You pay the tax, and then we'll let you kind of do whatever it is you're doing. And it was complicated because um, I suppose you have that weird thing. I mean, there's a very, very good um, Indian guy who demands, I think, one pound reparation for Indian uh, for, for for the Raj, um, and. Uh, his argument is that, you know, if you look at uh, India before colonization, it had a much greater share of world GDP than it did at the end. But equally, that was because at the beginning, GDP was agriculture. And it was essentially, it was essentially proportionate to your human population and your land. Right. And that was about it. And then you had the Industrial Revolution, which was essentially a complete game changer because it enabled uh, the production of things. Uh, I, I mean, uh, you know, first of all, non-human, non-animal energy. Right. You know. right. uh, we forget this, by the way, that that uh, steam power and electrification are much bigger than the internet in the scheme of things. Right. And so those things, you know, were emphatically a complete kind of game changer in terms of what kind of GDP you could have, because the scope for innovation in agriculture was not, not negligible, but it was finite, right. you know, at the time. Right. And well, so, yeah, um, well, so in fairness, I mean, part of the reason for the relative decline was that countries, and of course it was Belgium, which was probably number two, actually, country to actually get the Industrial Revolution, or northern France, um, Belgium, and a bit of Holland, I guess, um, also got it relatively fast. Well, so that's interesting, because one of the problems that Afghanistan has is it doesn't have a steady supply of electricity, right? That, that's, got it. That's still a problem in 2019. And so you can't necessarily, and, and roads are, whenever there's like a heavy rain, there's no more trade. You can't drive the car over because there's no steady road. So there's a lot of stagnation already built into the equation simply because the infrastructure and the foundations weren't laid to allow it to become a much more resourceful sort of economy, right? So there's, there's layers to all that, right? There was a really interesting guy who was uh, uh, the libertarian presidential candidate for the United States called Gary Johnson. Yeah. And he was a fanatical libertarian. He cut spending on everything. You know, he basically tried to shrink. New he was the governor of New Mexico. I remember. 
and um, really interesting guy actually and um uh if only he'd done a bit better but um i mean it's revealing that actually in new mexico he got something like 20 percent of the vote when he was the presidential candidate so he was clearly well liked there and his great thing was there are only two areas where i'm going to spend enormous amounts of money education and roads mm. and he basically said you can't get economic development unless there's a, a four-lane highway right Right, right, right. And uh, his, uh, his argument was very simple, which is that so and there's a huge danger, I think, in, in terms of what we might call the, the, the Dorman effect, mm -hmm. that we overlook the importance of intermediate technologies, like simply having a two lane highway, a four lane highway, and basically being able to get goods and people in and out. Because if you think about it, your effective radiance of operations, if you've got bad roads or you're a pedestrian, your effective radius of economic activity is incredibly small. Right. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a really interesting thing, which is, you know, my radius of sort of spending is, you know, with London roads aren't the best, but I can essentially become an economic actor with a radius of 60 miles, even face to face, fairly easily. And once you don't have that, it really is dire. Yeah, I agree. Well, check this out. There's a second order effect to that problem. So in Afghanistan, in certain parts of it, because there are not enough roads, whatever road tends to be there is also being manned by people who need quote unquote bakshish or a little of course. yeah right so if you have multiple roads they really can't you just be like okay don't go to that road today you can go to the side one and you can still transact so the actual cost of of being able to do transactions from a business point of view first of all they're non-existent second of all if there is an opportunity there's an added down tax for doing so and typically and, and so this actually feeds itself a lot more perpetually because now the person with the biggest gun could run that particular spot right yeah, yeah so, so so the whole thing this is the great thing about extractive economies which is once you i mean there's a there's a friend of mine who says that essentially the glorious revolution in the uk which although it only lasted a short time in effect various things anything you can do whether it's magna carta or whatever which stops an economy essentially becoming extractive and there's an argument about Latin America, which is what happened, which was that, uh, first of all, there's an argument that having really valuable mineral resources is a massive disadvantage for a country, because it means that the essential source of wealth is one where you can very, very easily, you know, essentially extract value from it, whether you're a warlord or a government or anything else, all of those kind of high value uh, resources are actually for an economy a bit of a catastrophe. Um, and there's also the whole thing about you know, the extent to which people can make money in ways over which now, you know, there might be really interesting technological ways around this. I mean, you know, blockchain has to be interesting in some way in that there is, you know, I mean, I know it's often the most hyped thing going on, but patently, patently it's going to find some uses. And, you know, th those means where you can actually make money without essentially and there's an interesting thing which is what is it that um there are different crops and of course there are crops which are easy to, easy to tax and crops which are really hard to tax right 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 and uh, you know corn is a really easy one because there's one harvest every year da, 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 you know and, and it's visible it's hugely visible etc right. etc Right. Uh, whereas mushroom farming is probably harder to tax because you can do it indoors and uh, all right. that sort of stuff. And so, no, I mean, and that, that's, that's a really interesting question as well. But, um, but I mean, the interesting thing, by the way, which we're not talking about and nobody is, is by the way, I don't know where in the world you are. I have no clue. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm in Toronto, Canada. You're in Canada. Fantastic. Okay. I wouldn't know. You could have been anywhere. Absolutely anywhere. And the interesting thing, uh, the interesting thing about that is that 
the opportunity in Canada, I always go to Canada. What fascinates me is that if you can have a Toronto, if 80% of a Toronto salary and you can live anywhere in Canada, you're God, aren't you? Basically, really? Basically. Because, because I mean, you, you know, not short of space, it has to be said, <laughs> Canadians. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the quality of life you can have, it's slightly anomalous Canada, isn't it? Because it has four huge cities and, and then, then there's a massive drop and everything else is a small town. It's slightly, it's slightly weird. That's right. But I had a friend tragically died, but her job was working for JP Morgan in uh, New York and living in Montana. Mm. And um, it did mean she had to get up insanely early in the morning. But since she was massively into equestrianism, this was actually ideal because she stopped work at about two o'clock in the afternoon and was then able to spend the daylight hours with horses. Right. And the capacity, in a sense, to make money uh, uh, through anything... I just I don't understand why what we're doing now in terms of video conferencing, which is pretty much TV quality audio and and, and, and TV quality picture, and soon will be you know 4K, uh, you know fantastic. I just bought one of these Facebook portals, by the way, which is a really remarkable thing because okay. it's really weird. One of the weird missing gaps in technology is video conferencing on your TV which is one of the strangest kind of missing links in, uh, in all of technology. The ability to provide services from anywhere strikes me as quite high. That you could, there's no reason why you couldn't have expert accountants based in Kabul, because the skills are there, the education levels are there, right. okay, the broadband's there. Right. You know what's not there? The cultural norms. I found this problem. I, I thought of exactly what you said. Okay. And the cultural norms that allow you to have that trust. When I build trust with you, as you spoke with me, we kind of speak almost the same language. And I don't mean that by the fact that we both speak English. I mean that and that we get the same jokes. You see what I mean? The trust level of building that is a lot faster than if you just met me and we were just autonomously interacting in a way where it was a mechanical process. Because I thought about that same problem because what I did was I, I opened up a little um, uh, online school to teach kids how to code back home. Yeah. I thought, hey, this is fantastic. They're going to learn how to code. People are going to hire them. Nobody wants to hire them. And I'm like, okay, why is nobody hiring them? Maybe you have an alchemy problem. This is pre-reading your book uh, in that regard. But I realized that no matter what I did, I couldn't um, get the, the, the potential employers in the West to drop their cognitive biases against a quote-unquote Afghan programmer, even though the skill sets were taught by somebody who learned it here from Google engineers. So I'm like, I'm taking what Google would have taught me if I had gotten a yep. job and I taught these kids who are way out there and you don't have to pay them as much, but the level of trust wasn't there because the cultural cohesion is missing. And that's the time uh, aspect that I couldn't overcome. I had to drop the whole project. It is just, there an arbitrage opportunity where people hire you and you give the... And I give the opportunity. That's yeah, because that, you, you're a cultural translator in that sense. That's right, you? that's right, that's right. So see, now that's a different point of view. And I didn't think of it that way. That, that could be very much applicable because... It does work out when you when you speak, and I, and I want to bring this back to your other point earlier. When I first got my my job in the in the in the telecom business, I was working basically uh, on tech support, and I speak to people in a way that you couldn't tell I'm Afghan if if, if you if you didn't see me on video. If, if it was just a straight phone call, you'd assume I'm a Canadian by by the way I speak, my mannerisms, my 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 tone, my inflection. And a friend of mine who who was actually teaching me and he was training me, and so I used to be wonder, I'm like, how come I'm getting better bonuses than you know is helping me with my job? And then I realized it's the way he speaks makes the people not give him the kind of survey reviews that they were expecting. I actually had a person say, 
it's a pleasure to speak to a Canadian and not somebody in India, right? <laughs> he didn't really cognitively make the connections. So that's sort of the problem we're, we're trying to deal with, which is now that... Because we have a very strange thing, which is a, an alchemy problem, which is that British call centers are being returned to the UK from India. Mm. And it's, it, the weird thing is, it's not really a language problem. It's probably an inflection problem. Mm. Um, and it may, it may also be a co just a psychological distance problem that actually once people knew the call centers were in India, they immediately feel, hold on a second, my problem, which is your fault, is being dealt with by someone essentially 3,000 miles away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that may, that may be a psychic, because what's the first thing you ask when you speak to someone on a mobile phone? Where are you? Right. Okay, totally stupid in one, in one sense. Um, but th that's a really interesting... Now, there's a great book to read I recommend called The Middleman Economy by a woman with a Russian surname. I don't know if she's Russian or, or not. But it's, a, it's an economic defense of the role of the middleman. Mm. And part of the role of the middleman is trust translator, yeah. which is you... Um, having read the book, it changed my behavior because when I wanted to book, for example, a seaplane tour of Sydney Harbour for my family, right. I booked it through the concierge. Right. Before I read the book, I would have booked it direct. And what I realized is that there's a difference between one person who buys from you 20 times a year and 20 people who buy from you once a year. The concierge at the Intercontinental Hotel in Sydney has much more hold over the seaplane firm by oh. dint of repeated interaction. Right. that I have, because right. he's not going to be bothered about pissing off two pommies and their kids and right. giving them a bit of a shit tour of the seaplane, of right. the harbour, but right. he's going to be very worried about pissing off the, uh, the concierge at the Intercontinental Hotel through whom 4% of his business comes, or whatever it might be. Right. And so you realise that in a non-ergodic setting, intermediaries have a real value. Right. Oh, having really controversially, this doesn't only apply to, for example, wedding planners, Right. A florist is going to be much more worried about upsetting a wedding planner. Also, the wedding planner is a translator between, if I'm going to be, this is going to be slightly sexist, but go, let's, let's run with it, okay? The bride's mother, who is probably organizing the wedding, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the florist. Right. Right. And the wedding planner can stop the bride's mother requesting things that are ridiculous. Yeah. And there is, a, there is a bargaining going on in the middle but also the florist is much more beholden to the wedding planner than he is to the bride's mother. Cause the bride's mother's probably only going to have one more wedding in her Right. The wedding planner has 159 or whatever. And this is also true, by the way, not only of wedding planners and not only true of, of, of um, intermediaries like fish merchants. It's also true of things like pimps. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Is, they're <laughs> terrible things, but they're information aggregators. Of course. Of okay. Course. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it's a fascinating book to read because your potential uh, and of course if you look at things in an engineering way you go well if i if i'm actually an intermediary between afghan programmers and canadian buyers i'm an inefficiency actually right. you're creating huge amounts of value right because right. the afghan people don't want to disappoint you and you don't want to disappoint google whereas right. the the google afghan relationship is going to be different in all kinds of ways of course, of course. No, but well, see, that's interesting on two fronts. One, I believe that uh, your presence on this podcast is precisely due to the uh, trust mediator of Michael Driver because he's a mutual friend of both of ours, right? Wonderful guy, yeah. Right. So that's sort of the same thing that sort of happened with this podcast, which is it snowballed because once people see you on the podcast, it'll automatically, quote unquote, give us some social proof so that we can, the next guest we ask, 
we always do this anyway because I'm fully aware of what the, the, the ramifications of it are. I always announce which guests we landed because I know that that's going to open the door for somebody else to come on board because they see that the risk was taken by somebody they respect and admire. And they go, if Rory's willing to go, then that's definitely not going to be a waste of my time. I, I, my, my weird view about the future of the UK, okay, which is a bit of a sort of, uh, is that the most powerful economic force in the world, I think, in a way, certainly in terms of innovation, mm-hmm. is going to be the uh, Indian, and I mean by Indian, I mean wider than Indian, I also include Pakistani, Bengali, and Afghan diaspora. Right. Which seems to me to be visibly an unbelievable source of uh, extraordinary potency in terms of business innovation and entrepreneurialism. And, you know, London and the UK will basically be a kind of legal home for the activities of this, being, being where it is geographically and linguistically, okay? In the same way that when two Middle Eastern countries do business, or two people, from two, they do business in London. Right. So, right. so the capital of the Middle East is the Edgware Road in London, okay? okay right. right? Uh, it, and it's all sorts of reasons, sort of le- 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 legal frameworks, etc. And in the same way, all I see the role of me as a Brit is like the Raj in reverse. In, 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 in 20 years' time, if I'm still working, it's going to be a kind of reverse Raj where people like me provide kind of marketing uh, and intermediary services f- uh, for the... Uh, enormously potent activities of the uh, of that diaspora and the Chinese diaspora, of course, because the three the three biggest diasporas in the world are the Chinese, the Indian, and the British. Weirdly, okay, right. so we're we're a very sad number three on that, but I mean, not irrelevant. And so, in a sense, if you look at those groups, which are which have something which is globally dispersed about them, and the, the, the Lebanese, uh, if you talk to Nassim, are invented it really. The, the Phoenicians kind of invented this. This is still true thousands of years later. I had a friend who worked for the security services, and he said, when you're in a foreign country, your first job is to find a Lebanese friend because they, they can find information on anything because they've got a mate or like a second cousin who lives in Accra, and you need to find out what's happening in Accra, and the whole thing is this sort of trading network. Right. Um, and you look, at, you look at diaspora groups, and they're extraordinarily economically important in one shape or another and so that's my hunch is that you know essentially that you know the future of london is to become a kind of weird services center for uh, for those kind of activities it's interesting because from what you just stated it feels to me like the ability to arbitrage trust which is what you're really doing is a form of alchemy in the sense that i'm saying to people if you go through me you can have the expectations of business the way you're used to it yep but how I get that done is irrelevant to you because all you care about is the end results. Of course. The same thing happens on the other end of it. So maybe, I mean, maybe an interesting question is just that, you know, the, 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 if you look at it, there are diaspora cultures of which you could include Lebanese, Jewish, British, because Canada's basically Scotland on a huge scale, isn't it? It's, it's Pretty much. essentially, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and you have, you know, Greek Cypriots, etc. Uh, you know, there's, there's an awkward thing, which is, and to some extent, it's a very interesting thing, okay, which is, which is a, a divining line between countries is their readiness to tool off to other places. If you put an ad for the head of Ogilvy Philippines up on the wall of, you know, 40 offices in, in, um, uh, in, across Europe, yeah. okay, a Brit will go, an Irish guy will go, a Dutch guy will go. He's interested, okay? 
Right. A German or a French guy is literally, you know, 90% less likely to jump at that opportunity. A Swede, a Scandinavian might as well, because their English essentially makes them, uh, you know, part of the same gig, uh, in a sense, I suppose. Okay. But uh, it's vastly less likely. So there, there is this weird divide in Europe, in a sense, between countries which are much... And, of course, you know, the Portuguese are kind of interesting there because they're, you know, they're highly... The, 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 you have those huge diasporas like Madeirans in South Africa and all that sort of thing. But, I mean, it, it is interesting that the, the, the French diaspora is kind of crap, isn't it? I mean, there are a few Canadians. Um, and um, that's about it, really, wasn't it? They, you know... Um, but... Um, uh, it, 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 it does seem to be a sort of strange divide and that the mentality is fundamentally different. Right. I guess, in a way, it, it, it sometimes, I mean, let's just take a look at this on face value, obviously not generalizing, but if you look at the German and the French people you just mentioned, they tend to have a more air of superiority about their culture and their country than the rest of the world. And in the sense that they were not willing to... Um, to give up as much of that prestige that comes with staying at home than the rest of the countries are not. You see what I mean? Yeah, interesting. So I, yeah, so I've noticed this, and I, and I look when, when, when French people visit Toronto or Canada and then they go to Montreal, the first thing they do is they despise how bad the French is in Montreal. So, right? so, so no, well, that's, that's why the English speak English, not French, because well, the Normans, who were speaking French in probably the 12th century, when they met French people, the French took the piss out of how bad their French was. Right, right, right. right. And so they went, fuck this. <laughs> we'll call it a sheep, okay? <laughs> sod, this, sod this for a game of soldiers. We'll just go local. Right. <laughs> the same thing happened, actually. Because it's very interesting, Canadian French is very interesting, because I can understand every word if I listen to the radio. Because right. it's effectively French spoken by an English person. For God's sake, I'm going to get killed when I next go to Montreal. <laughs> what I mean, it's, it's actually properly enunciated and clear to understand. It <laughs> it's very interesting uh, for a person like uh, for us because we're Afghans. We're not necessarily, and I always remind, and I'm always reminded of this. I'm not necessarily a Canadian, and the way I know that is when I walk to the border, they don't care that I was a Canadian citizen. They go, "Oh, you're born in Kabul. Random check for you." So I, I always feel like I don't necessarily have a home. But for me to watch all of this, because I don't have a dog in the fight, I sort of see the cultural differences kind of come out in the, in the weirdest ways possible. And language and how they speak is always, always the first thing that comes up. Oh, you don't speak true French. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you start to see where that comes from, right? And, and I, ha I had my weirdest experience. So I ordered breakfast in Montreal, and I was watching the baseball. Okay. And the two people brought in my eggs Benedict, or whatever it was, uh, in Montreal. And they started commenting on baseball in French. Okay. Which was, to me, was, uh, it, it was just a complete, you know, a brain explosion. Because the idea of a French person talking knowledgeable, or rather, someone talking knowledgeably about baseball in French was such a weird thing. <laughs> this is really weird. It's they still had a team back then. I think the Expos still existed, didn't they? They moved to... Yeah, they moved out. Yeah. And it's like listening to a French person rap. It just throws you off. You just <laughs> Completely, yeah. Right. It's also very difficult to rap in French because every word ends in A. Right. So whether it's A-I-S-E-R-E-Z-A-I-T-E-R, whatever it is. So rhyming is too easy, which was always right. an interesting thing in French poetry, which had to be meter-based rather than rhyme-based because right. you haven't got enough rhymes going on, basically. You don't have enough tools to get the yeah. Cut. So go ahead, Amber, ask the, the questions. From of course, Twitter. the Twitter questions, of course. Sorry, yeah. 
Yes, no problem. All right, so one of the questions was given that the people don't know what they want and uh, it's futile to ask them directly. What's the best way to figure out what people want? Um, uh, probably experimentation that what economists would call um, revealed preference rather than stated preference. Because if this is actually taking what Hayek would say, which is you can't have a command economy because you don't have the information. Okay. Right. You can't aggregate the information. And I take it even further and say the information isn't even there to begin with until you actually offer people the product. Okay. You don't get, you, 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 no, nobody knows what they want in advance. Right. Uh, Henry Ford kind of said that with, you know, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Right. But, um, but the point is that I take the Hayekian thing one stage further. It isn't just that you need markets to aggregate the information. It's that you need markets to tease out the information to begin with. And the classic example I always give of this is very bluntly, I spend an insane amount of money on you know, electrical gadgets of any kind. Mm -hmm. And to be absolutely honest, every time I buy one now, I go, this is kind of a one in three gamble. Okay. Mm -hmm. One in three, I'm going to find this the most useful thing I've ever bought. Uh, the Philips Air Fryer is my great. Uh, by the way, if you haven't got one, oh. Okay. <laughs> so the, Philip, the Philip, Philips Air Fryer is just. Um, uh, I bought one for my dad. He's eighty-eight. He he's an evangelist as well. He just goes, you know, I can't believe, you know, you know, anybody who doesn't have one of these is insane. Okay. Huh. So there's a Philips Air Fryer, and then there are things which end you know, a yogurt maker, which ends up in the back of the drawer, and you've made one lot of yogurt, you know. And your uh, the, the, the bread slicer no that's that, that's well in, a, well in the back of the cupboard uh, maybe now my children are 18 i can bring it out again i should think about that because actually it does make bread last longer because sliced bread does tend to go off rather fast um, right. so it's not a wholly erroneous decision <laughs> uh, but no things like you know i've just bought a thing which is a macerating juicer and I'm at, at that moment, I have used it five days in a row, so it's looking promising. But genuinely, I have absolutely no idea when I buy something uh, where it's going to sit on that kind of hierarchy of... Uh, there's always an interesting thing with gadgets, you know. Uh, there are things where if, if your gadget broke, you'd buy a new one immediately, versus if it broke, you'd be glad to get rid of it. And there's a whole sort of spectrum there. Your mobile phone handset obviously sits the far end and your yogurt makers probably at the other end um but it's it, it's interesting because you know and also we don't even know why we value the things we do because the evolutionary distinction this is adding basically this is adding um uh, to be in cosmodes to dot to um to hayek which is because we have uh, uh because our proximate intentions tend to be those of which we're consciously aware, but the ultimate driver is unconscious and in Robert Trivers' terms is often deliberately hidden from us because self-deception is necessary to our survival as a species. Right. Okay. Then actually the only way to actually discover what people want is to do it. And you know, I, I, I'm consciously reminded, you know, uh, if, if, if you come to me and said, okay, um, Dyson, We've got this idea for a really expensive high-end vacuum cleaner. I would have said to you, and I'm, you know, let honest humility, I consider myself quite good at this shit, but I would have said to James Dyson, look, if ever there were a distress purchase, it's the vacuum cleaner. You know, the idea of premiumizing the vacuum cleaner or super premiumizing it, I would have thought was, you know, st stick, stick to making those ball barrows, Jim, because seriously, 
Um, now, I would have been totally wrong. I would have suggested that Coke wouldn't sell in the UK. You know, we're a tea drinking culture. We're not remotely teetotal, so we drink a lot of alcohol. Um, uh, you know, Britain in 1950 would have been very, very boozy. Um, you know, all these things I would have given. Ice isn't available. Um, uh, you know, we've got a shit climate. I mean, loads of reasons why we shouldn't drink Coke. You know, no one before Starbucks existed would have said, hey, what I really want to do is spend four dollars on a coffee. Right? Okay. And so uh, this is one of the reasons I, I'm very much in favor of alchemy, because you have to test things that don't make sense. Right. Because they don't make sense to our, you know, the prefrontal cortex, but they may satisfy some pro some ultimate Darwinian need, of which even we aren't toothpaste. It's really about vanity, and right. you know, because we clean our teeth before a date much more assiduously than we do after lunch. Right. So the, the the ostensible benefit. This is why I talk about scenting the soap and all these kind of things. That soap is partly about hygiene, but actually the the reason we really do it is Darwinian, which is, you know, we're frightened of smelling. Right, right. Well, it's interesting about that because if you think about the Nest thermostat, right, that's a whole area of the house that nobody paid attention to. No, 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 no absolutely. Uh, by, by the way, by the way, actually, a large part of the reason it works environmentally is simply because it's not in a cupboard. Right, right, right. Okay, now I, I, have, a, I have a smart meter, and I, they didn't listen to me, but I told them the smart meter, if you install one and people engage with it actively, will have environmental benefits. But the way to sell it is to say, put it next to your back door, your front door. Yes. You can see when you leave the house, it wow. means you'll know if you've left anything switched on. Right. And that's the, that's the, so selling it as a way to stop your daughter setting fire to your house with her. Now you don't need hair straighteners. There are major, I think hair straighteners, all those tongs are a major source of domestic fires. Okay. Yep. And they're, they're merely left on. Now the, the real way to sell it is to get people to engage with it for security reasons, a bit like you sell soap on its vanity reasons. And the wider social benefit is therefore unconsciously more environmental behavior or better hygiene. But you don't sell soap on, hey, wash with pear soap and help prevent a cholera outbreak. You just gave me an idea because what if you create that security keypad that you lock your house with to actually turn off all the power with it, right? So you can manage... Hotel rooms, hotel rooms kind of do that. Right, right. But here's the... You take the key out of the door and clunk. Now, actually, tip to hotel people, if you leave anything credit card sized in the slot, because yeah. if you want to charge your phone when you're not in your hotel room, Okay, you need to leave something in there, and any loyalty card will do the job. Okay, <laughs> I shouldn't be telling you this because it's bad environmentally. Okay, but nonetheless, it's a good principle. You lock the door, bump the lights, all the except the, the, what pro what's the problem is you've got your uh, you've got your PVR and you've got your fridge and you've got a few things. Right. So, we were we designing houses de novo? Uh, we designed them with a separate ring to supply things which are always on. And actually, you'd have a three-socket plug, and one of them would be the always-on socket, and the other two would be the one that's turned off. Right, right. Well, you know what? So yeah. you, the argument for that, logically, from their business point of view is out of sight, out of mind, and we could just charge them, and they won't notice it, and we'll just get the bill for them, and maybe that's their business incentive as to why they don't want to go your, with your route. What do you think? No, I mean, I probably actually... It's like a gym membership, right? If it's there and nobody's yeah. coming... I think actually in that case, in that case, funnily enough, yeah, I think, I think generally, uh, in my defense of the electrical industry, I've known electrical people who are very heavily selling showers. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
technically, uh, if they simply wanted to make money, then energy companies would encourage baths. I suppose one way to interpret my book is to say that if you want to solve problems creatively, one toolkit that's really useful is to be really open-minded about epistemology. Okay. Okay. Okay? So it's to ask really tough species-specific culture-specific questions about epistemology. And uh, that's, uh, that's actually a route to creative problem-solving because so much rational problem-solving assumes perfect perception. Right, right. And perfect foreknowledge and all those kind of things. And, of course, what we've evolved to do is work in a world where we have imperfect information, very imperfect information about the future, imperfect information about the present, and so forth and where we're, we're trying to minimize catastrophe rather than to optimize outcome i'll, I'll compound that with the problem of a deluge of too much useless information absolutely wow making your bandwidth to process all this do, do you know what i've started doing by the way i've stopped watching 24-hour rolling news on tv and i've started train spotting if you go to youtube you put youtube on because I like something when I work, I like something on in the background just to provide a little bit of what, what Nassim calls stochastic resonance. Okay. 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 I just like something. That's why I like working in a cafe or on a train more than I do in complete silence. So what I started doing, there's a wonderful site called virtual rail fan on YouTube. You put it on your main TV and it's train spotting through live high definition webcams. And so you just get a live view of a railway station. And there's a little bit of conversation you can hear every now and then someone wanders on occasionally a moment of high excitement, a train comes in and you look up for your work and go, Oh, look, it's the, you know, it's the super chief. What it's not called the super chief anymore. Is it well, that, that train from Chicago to LA through New Mexico, uh, the Southwestern chief, I think it's called. Okay. And the train comes in and you know, last time I was watching some, um, uh, uh, some, they were, what, what were they? they were, I think they were probably uh, Mennonites, actually. A whole group of Mennonites got on. And then I looked up, oh, that's interesting. You know, some Mennonites. Okay. And then I got on with my work. And I suddenly realized that watching 24-hour rolling news was driving me insane because the noise-to-signal ratio was appalling. Yep, yep. I agree with you. I agree with you. What I find interesting is if I'm sitting in a room all by myself, I can't get anything done. And here's why. In my head, I think... This is a huge planet. There are 7 billion people doing things. Why am I not doing anything? Even if I'm quote unquote working, it doesn't, I need noise. I need to know there's people around. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Birds flying by, I stop and stare and I wave to the bird pointlessly. But nonetheless, I feel like there's interaction. And that little bit of randomness actually adds value to my life as opposed to pure silence. It's, it's one of the reasons I like to travel by train because um, there's shit going on outside the window. You know, every yeah. now and then you stop or you see something or, you know, um, I saw, you know, and I always say refer to rail journeys as, I think the phrase is mnemopoetic or poetic, which is you can remember far more about a train journey. I want to saw the most fantastic, most French thing in the world, which was tooling along at 150 miles an hour, two cars in a field part one behind the other in this field and the man going out to meet the woman. And it was the most perfect. It was three seconds of assignation. You know, wow. it was extramarital affair. So, you wow. know, you just come through the tunnel to France and you see this classic, you know, what you can spot in three seconds is obviously an extramarital affair going on. And so <laughs> I said, you never see that looking out of the window of a plane, do you? You oh, never, you know, you never get that. All right, so the next question. Um, what's the difference between the behavioral economics uh, that you practice and the top-down soft coercion behavioral economics that you see someone like Richard Thaler push? Well, I mean, 
anything that attacks mainstream economics is okay with me because it provides an opportunity to get rid of a, a wrong assumption. And the way you solve a problem, so we're, you know, I mean, Nassim sees, sees us very much as being on the opposite side. I'm much, much more, well, uh, he sees us as being on opposite sides. I basically don't make those narrow distinctions. What I would say is that I, uh, I regard the assumption that economic rationality is rationality with much more skepticism than many behavioral economics people do in behavioral finance most people are trying to make people behave more inverted commas rationally and i'm the guy going maybe what they're doing is if you know what they're really trying to do ultimately right. as well as proximately which may not be maximized wealth right uh, okay an awful lot of the the very assumption by the way that utility is, is an additive function not not multiplicative Right. Okay, strikes me as a fundamental flaw, right at the, but this is why I'm so keen on following. Now, bear, bear, bear in mind, my only role here in the ergodicity debate is to be like the world's shittest version of Huxley. Oh. And in other words, there's a, you know, there's a kind of 24 karat genius out there, and I can just about what he's, understand what he's doing mathematically. It's way outside my maths envelope for 90% of it. But if I can occasionally translate that into something, you know, which you know, a random audience could understand. Then right. that's my that's my job in that in that field. Um, the the um, the really interesting thing I think is that uh, you know so many of those assumptions about what's rational are apparently plausible, and because they're plausible, we we deem them rational, and because they're rational, we deem them right. right. And my argument is, from plausible to rational and rational to right, are both involve massive leaps of faith, which we can't confidently make without asking really, really tough questions about what's really going on. Yeah, um, so I'll give you an example of how that's weird. So I had this guy who's, um, who owns a restaurant, and it's, and it's a, the restaurant he owns, his father gave to him and his grandfather gave to them. So I, I was just, you know, we're just talking, and, and I said to him, I said, hey, you know, I, I, I kind of visited your website on my phone when I was coming here, and it's really, it's not really conducive to mobile viewing. He said, oh, I understand. Uh, so we talked about, I said, you know, would you like me to help you rebuild this website? Bought me tooth and nail, penny pinched every step of the way, but nonetheless, we got it done. Now, here's what's interesting. About five months later, his daughter was setting up her website for her design studio because she wanted to be like an interior decorator. No price was too high. Oh, everything, oh, all, no expenses spared for her. Yep. Uh, for him, penny pinched everything that had to be done. And I was like, these are two different people I'm dealing with. Because when, when he first called me for his daughter, I was very hesitant to even take the call. I actually thought, oh, he's calling me because something is not working or he's unhappy. God, this is going to be dreadful. As soon as I picked up, he's like, Ace, you know, you did such a great job. I wanted to talk to you about building a website for my daughter. And I was just like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to go through this whole exercise. And he said to me, whatever she wants, just do it. I said, wait, what do you mean whatever she wants? He goes, there's no expenses spared here. And that was his first sentence to me. And it threw me off for a complete loop. I was stunned into silence, which rarely happens. And I, I was as I was reading your book, I started to think about that. I'm like, look at this. His business is already established and it's good to go. Doesn't yeah. need website. Doesn't care. To him, it's an extra unnecessary expense because the reason you go to his, and, and when you go to his restaurant, you can't pay electronically. You have to bring cash with you because they don't want to. Oh, if it's that kind of restaurant, you may argue there's a degree of counter-signaling in having a bit of a crap website, by the way. Probably. Seriously. Which is, in other words, it's a bit like with a name like Smuckers, we have to make really good jam. Right. Okay. right. So if you make, there are certain ethnic restaurants which make no effort 
around um, presentation because it, 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 a there, there are two possible reasons for that one of which of course is your expectation might be lower so your delight is higher right i i went to a japanese restaurant in um los angeles and i couldn't believe uh, it, it was like the number seven restaurant in los angeles and when i got there i couldn't believe truly that this was the place i thought it's in some strip mall somewhere and it was utterly fantastic. But the presentation on the exterior was atrocious. And sometimes I think that's done deliberately because in a sense, there is, there is a category in restaurants, which is it's all about the food. Right. And that with a name like Smuckers, we have to make good jam. We, we, we couldn't be this crowded with this terrible uh, frontage. Um, and it also suggests the restaurant is genuinely good rather than merely being fashionable. I hate new, the New York restaurant scene because you go... Um, oh, I'm thinking of going to this restaurant last tonight. They go, oh, that is so last year. Go, I'm not fucking interested in whether it's last year. I'm interested in whether it's a good restaurant or not. My fundamental enjoyment of food does not change with the fucking season. Right? Okay, what is this bullshit? And you realise that's all about signalling. It's not about the food at all. You know, that, oh, if you go to a restaurant that was fashionable in 2017, you know, you can't take your clients there because it might actually be possible. To, the other thing with New York is what they really love is a restaurant that's impossible to get into. Right. Because yeah. it's full of type A personalities who are all essentially trying to compete. And the only thing they've got left to compete for is scarcity. Right. Right. And okay. so New York strikes me as a majorly fucked up culture, actually. Toronto is rather good. Have you been to Biblos, by the way? Very good Lebanese restaurant. In Toronto, have you ever been there? No. What's it called? Uh, uh, Biblos, B-Y-B-L-O-S. I was taken there by someone who's Lebanese. Uh, and it's on, I've got a vague memory, it's in Hudson Street in Toronto. Uh, <laughs> and it's B-Y-B-L-O-S, and it's really fabulous. Okay, definitely going to be on there the There you list. go. Anyway, I'll give you, I'll give you a... Look at, look at the advice you get. See the value you get. Um, but no, I mean, that's interesting. Whereas in a design firm, if you can't design your website... You're not even in business. But secondly, in the early stages of an organization, signaling matters more. Right, because you're an unknown. Because the whole thing's path dependent and, you know, you haven't really got any pre-existing custom. And right. also for a designer, does, you know, in a sense, having a bad website for an interior designer is like being a bad interior designer. Whereas actually, uh, yeah, there's a, particularly ethnic restaurants... Uh, of course, the other interesting thing with ethnic restaurants is quite often people from people who are recent immigrants don't know how to signal. Mm -hmm. So for a long time in England, it was very difficult because the signaling currency is weird. What, what I mean is the sort of visual grammar. So what, when I wander around New York, I've got to be a bit cautious because in London, I can tell if I'm in an unsafe area in a millisecond. Whereas in New York, I can't read the scenes, you know. Right. So I, I, if it said bail bonds in a shop, I'd probably go, oh, we, we're, getting a, we're getting somewhere a bit dicey here. But <laughs> yeah. I, can't read, I can't read the architecture at all. You know? right. And quite often when people arrive in a country, Indian restaurants, I consider Indian food, uh, and I would include Afghan food in that and anywhere around that area, uh, absolutely at the pinnacle of culinary enjoyment. And yet it was very difficult to create a premium Indian restaurant. Right, right, right. Because... To do that, you've got to create the decor, which is commensurate with premiumness. And flock wallpaper was the, you know, was it was a default Indian idea of premiumness, uh, right. you know, and thick pile carpets. Right. And so, so there's also that question as an interior designer, you've got to be able to absolutely read that grammar. Now, actually, you can get great. You often Tyler Cowan would probably say you often get really fantastic food from places that are absolutely rubbish, particularly right. if you want good value food. Right. 
right? You know because, it, you know, it's, it's not like the point I made in The Spectator. Actually, if you want a good restaurant recommendation for an Indian restaurant, ask a scaffolder or a builder. Don't ask, don't ask a, a university professor. Because right. a university professor is trying to signal how sophisticated he is. Right. And he'll talk about some place which is basically French food with a, with, with, with a bit of mint leaf on top. Right. Okay? Right. Whereas the builder is actually interested in the food. Right. You know what's interesting about that? Um, I've had two friends open two Afghan restaurants. And here's a, a contrast. The first one had mismatched uh, chairs inside because he brought them from home and from friends. So you walked in, one chair looked different from the other. Um, the, the, the walls kind of didn't look that good. The food was fabulous, right? Like just outstanding food. And you could, he could charge you the, the, the prices you wanted. And, and we practiced, you know, like incrementally increasing the prices and people start still paying. The next friend... His brother was a finance guy in the States. So he financed it. He said, let's build a high-end, quote-unquote, Afghan restaurant. And he built it, and he invested a lot of money. You walked in there. It felt like something like, like a, a modern-day steakhouse or whatever. Profitability-wise, the guy who's mismatched chairs, higher. And uh, he, yeah, yeah. He couldn't get the premium price to stick because when you walk in, now you're like, wait a minute. This food, is, even though it's almost exactly the same food, you're like the one and the other's restaurant tastes better. None of the stuff that you would expect is there, but the food is so good, you constantly go back. Whereas here, people recommend it to you. You go there and you have expectations that are not met and you don't, you don't want to go back. So this is exactly the thing, which is also, if you're going to go somewhere swanky where your intention is to impress, you're going to take people to a French restaurant. Right. Uh, which is annoys the fuck out of me because I'd rather go to an Indian restaurant any, any day of the week, or an Afghan restaurant for that matter. Uh, but my friend, my friend was totally gutted because he was a banker and was taken out to Hong Kong and was massively looking forward to fantastic Chinese food. And he was, he was working with Goldman Sachs at the time. He was taken to a French restaurant every evening of his stay. And he came back absolutely gutted, you know, because it's, it's the whole thing of, and the, the wonderful thing, by the way, is the restaurant business is the most sarcastic business in the world, isn't it? Where, um, I mean, you know, this is a wonderful case in Seven Oaks, my local town. The guy who ran a kebab shop opened a more high-end Turkish restaurant next door on a site where every single restaurant had failed beforehand. And I was kind of going, oh, my God, you know, the parking, you could only park downhill and then you've got to walk up, which is a factor, by the way. If you can park uphill and walk down, that's not so bad. Right. But, but if you're first, yeah. if, in order to get to the restaurant in the first place, you have to walk uphill and, and there wasn't much parking. I was going, oh, my God, I hope he's getting And it's a huge success. And no one rational would have predicted it. I could have come up with 20 PowerPoint presentations as to why you shouldn't open a restaurant on that site. It's a monumental success. Right. It's, it's interesting. There's a there's a um, Italian bakery that I go to, which I took uh, Amber the other day to. Here's what was fascinating about it. They first opened it and the grandmother who runs it now wasn't part of it. The, the thing barely made any money and they were about to close down. She came in and she's got attitude out the wazoo. Right? Like you, you walk in there and you're yeah. left you to leave. The place is so busy now that they actually took over half a store that used to be next to them. And on a good day, you can't park your car there. And it's because, like you said, when she showed up, all first thing she did was she said, okay, the recipes that you're, those are my recipes, but you don't know how to cook them. So she started cooking and teaching them how to cook it the way she does. And second of all, she set a standard for how people are to behave, not of the employees, but of the customers. So if you walk in there and you're rude, she'll ask you to leave and don't come back because she just does not put up with that. And her business is booming. 
absolutely brilliant yeah actually i suspect that if all businesses were run by middle-aged women uh <laughs> the economy would be vastly richer um I, 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 it's a kind of, um, we should do that as an experiment actually take a town and basically give every single business control of every single business to a woman in her 40s or 50s and just wait wait for everything to succeed it'd be fantastically easy um because uh, also their capacity i mean I was talking to an academic and he said, we now have, you know, at the history faculty in this kind of world leading university, we have an administrative department of about 25 people. He said, when I started 30 years ago, we had one middle-aged woman who knew everything. Right. Said, uh, right, right, right. So two quick questions for you. One, um, after your book has come out, have you noticed that the rest of the industry has adopted some of your ideas? Cause we're trying to spread it. Well, I hope so. I mean, you never, you never really know. But the one thing, uh, the one thing I, um, I, I have noticed, which is weird, is the books become a surprise hit in the investor community, particularly in the US, but also in the UK. Okay. Okay. So the, I never, I never anticipated that. But I suppose the argument is, is that if you're looking for whatever it is they call it, alpha or whatever it is, okay, then you need a different way of looking at the world. And, and you know, if you look at the world through through the same lens as everybody else, which is the balance sheet lens, you have the same information as everybody else, and it doesn't really tell you anything in terms right. of getting comparative advantage. If you have a new frame of reference, the behavioral frame, the non the, uh, the non-ergodic frame, whatever it may be, the Darwinian frame around experimentation and so forth, then it gives you the potential to notice things that other people don't. Fair enough. And I suppose if my book has one message, it's that everything is subjective. Okay, you can take statistics and you can take a whole data set and depending on how you choose to look at it, the meaning you derive from that will be entirely different. Excellent. Excellent. So the right. last and question for Amber. I hope not much, because in fairness to my book, it's hard to misunderstand because I'll be absolutely honest with you. I'm not even trying to be right. OK, I think the great mistake of academic behavioral economics is it's trying to construct the same certainties in behavioral economics as is found in kind of physics. And it's a misunderstanding of what a science is, that complexity science, all it can do is find maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe all you could do is find out, actually, maybe all you could do is, I argue that in business, we, we have a very, very different bar in terms of certainty. The, jo the job of science is to try and be right. The job of business is to be less wrong than your competitors. Right. Okay. And so my book isn't really, I mean, there are far more b better books by academics who are far more rigorous. I'd recommend, for example, um, the book, I think it's Don Hoffman's The Case Against Reality. Okay. which is a fascinating one where he suggests that human consciousness is to reality what a computer desktop is to a uh, is to the workings of a computer it's a representational space and that's all it is you know um so there are far better books by academics on that my book was intended to be sort of widely popular and readable I and mean, hoffman's book's very readable but so i'm not dissing it on those grounds but but my, my my main point point is i'm not suggesting you have to think like me at all i'm merely thinking that putting uh, 30 minutes aside to consider alternatives is never time wasted excellent thank you so much for your time thank you very much indeed so much thank you very it's much. a pleasure we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition 
and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Delirious signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.